0: Welcome back to the Music Movies Podcast. I am your host, Ben Young, joined by my special guest, as per usual. It's Drew Keen.
1: How are you doing? You know, Ben, I was gonna try to spin like some sort of like douchebag or terrible joke right here, but I'm just so excited for this episode (laughs) that I can't do it. You can't even do it. I can't do it. We're spicing it up
0: today a little bit. We are spicing it up today. We are interviewing, having a conversation with writer, director, musician, Christopher Malinowski. He wrote and directed and did the music for the film that we watched. Yes, your tide is cold and dark, sir. Thank you
1: for joining us tonight. Thanks for having me. Yeah. I feel privileged. I
2: feel honored.
1: We feel honored. yeah. I'm very excited for this because this is not only our first indie movie, it's our first interview. It oh is yeah! Behind the music movie, genius. Behind the music movie. And VH1 then, one don't come after us. I've known Christopher <laughs> Malinowski for most of my life, so it's uh, honestly just a treat to even see him. So I'm so stoked. <laughs> yeah, man, I see yeah, you guys too. I yeah. Feel
2: like, uh, it's. I. I feel like it's a long, long-needed hangout.
0: Yeah, blast from the past kind of. We've definitely yeah. shared the stage a number of times. Justin yep. Swingline, the Callingwood. Yep. Actually, probably around where this film <laughs> was taking place and filmed. Yeah. yeah. Um which let's just get into it a little bit sure, it is sure. uh cool to me that you did film it in the Cape Penlope and Rehoboth area because when it comes to movies at large, there's not a lot of stories that take place in Delaware, and there's not a lot of movies um, that are filmed in Delaware. The movies that you always hear are um, the Robin Williams movie, Dead Poets Society, Poet Society was Society. filmed yeah. in Delaware, and then the other movie that I always think of, I have the poster of it on my wall over here, because it's one of my favorites, is Fight Club, because the story takes place in Wilmington, yeah. Delaware. Yeah. But other than those two, it's like what else what other movies are there from Delaware? Can you I mean, do you know of yeah, some
2: I, and and you um I don't think Fight Club was shot here right. It's no, here. it's <laughs> so, yeah okay.
0: the setting is here, but it was shot in L.A. I guess Delaware like turned it's, them down.
2: It's like Del- oh. Delaware has no film commission either. They don't have any help for filmmakers, unfortunately. They have no tax, really? no tax incentive to shoot here. That's why a lot of people won't come here. Gotcha. But there, there have been some movies shot here. Part of Blue Ruin was shot here never part seen it ruin, what is blue ruin blue ruin is a, uh, a crime film a very subtle crime film okay uh, that was on the indie circuit for a long time it's a great film so blue mm-hmm. ruin of, uh, and another film called dish in the spoon by a woman named allison bagnell okay shot here uh, that was also shot in rehoboth i was unaware oh of it. wow a guy that i knew in film school mark schwartzbard uh shot that film um, awesome. And it looks fantastic. My wife saw it. I haven't seen it yet, but I've heard of it. it's a fantastic film.
1: Right. But well, other than
2: real. that, you're, you're not going to there's there's just not much, much there. Yeah. Well, that's
0: yeah. Well, that's cool Uh, that you named off a couple more that I can go check out, because as I was saying to me, it's just cool being from Delaware and seeing um, yeah. other th- th- movies that are filmed around here. You know what I mean? Because you don't see it yeah.
2: often. Blue Ruin, I would definitely recommend Yeah.
1: Cool. yeah cool it's definitely cool like recognizing scenes because i mean i live in chicago obviously tons of movies are shot here mm-hmm. right, like, yeah. you know when you watch the dark night and you see like of the that oh that block is down the street from the restaurant i used to run like i'm like that, i've walked past that 80 million times yeah not once in my life yeah. did i think this could be a movie scene
0: like all, all the, the John, John Hughes, that's exactly what I was gonna say. Yeah. Like Ferris Bueller's Day Off, Home uh-huh. Alone, like all those yep. movies. Uh Blues Brothers, I think, was in Chicago. You know, a ton of ton of movies in Chicago, but Delaware, it's like eh, it's just a little I don't know, special type of thing. But uh to get into it a little bit more, Chris, when like when and where did you get into movies or like the art of movies? And uh, and music,
2: you know, my father was a music teacher. So there were guitars and we had guitars around the house and a dr- he get, got me a little drum kit. I actually started as a drummer and he taught. And then at night he would come home and he worked with me a little bit on drums. And, I, you know, the guitar was hanging around and we had some Jim Croce records. So I would sit in front of the okay. the, the stereo and pretend like I was Jim Croce playing guitar. Uh, And then I got into, somehow I got into Casey and the sunshine band with their like pastel suits and bell bottoms and horn section. I loved Casey from Casey and the sunshine band. And then our, uh, our babysitter, Jane Paula introduced me to kiss. She bought the kiss destroyer album to our house in 1976. And then it was all over. I kind of wanted to go like, then that's all I thought about was playing music. I'd have little kiss concerts in my bedroom and like, my parents had a really rocky relationship. Mm -hmm. So I would spend a lot of my time in my room while they were arguing. And I think it really kind of gave me a sense of peace to be listening to that stuff and think, well, you know, something, something feels right to me here. And I just felt like I was in heaven when I was listening to that stuff. So that's how the music end of it started.
0: Awesome. Film was
2: much later because, you know, I taught at my father's store. I had the band purgatory. I was in freak show and the absurd then leading to the Collingwood. But my father, when my parents were divorcing, my father would take me to drive-in movies on the nights that he had me because I would beg him to take me to horror movies, and oh, uh, nice. yeah, and he. Uh, one night, I we went to two hundred two drive-in. I don't know if you guys have ever been there, but it's on it was on route two hundred two. Yeah, <laughs> it, it probably isn't
0: even there anymore. <laughs> it
2: is not. It's a nursery. It's a oh, nursery. Wow. It's up by Jimmy John's, that hot dog joint. Like yeah, yeah, I know. I know
0: where you're talking about. Fuck yeah. the owner of that
2: place. Yeah, it's right around there. And uh, he took me to see this film Phantasm. And 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 the first film was Blackout, which is a film from Canada. Second film was The Warriors, which oh, I love. Oh, I like that it's, movie. Yeah, it's a perfect film. And the then gang movie? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. And then Phantasm played, and it had such an impact on me because uh, the lead character was kind of like a late, early teenager, 13-year-old boy named Mike, and his parents had died and blah, blah, blah. And it was always like the drama of the film that interested me, not so much the horror movie elements. And it made, because my parents were divorcing. maybe it was something I just glommed glommed onto in terms of the narrative and the safety in the film. And that film kind of changed everything for me. I remember the songs that played on the way, this is 1979, when I saw May 18th, 1979. But I remember the songs on the radio in my dad's car that played on the way home. Like, Wow. It was that
0: it. much of an impact.
2: Oh, yeah. And then I end up working, when I was doing a film school internship work, I worked on Phantasm Four when I was in California. Really? Which was yeah, I got to meet the director and the cast and hang out with them for, you know, actually it was a couple of months, and then I left and went to another movie, but Mask of wow. Absor- Well, that's, that's
0: cool amazing. that it, like, came uh, full circle in a way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's Awesome, and you said Kiss. I guess is a is a big inspiration. We just talked about Kiss a couple of weeks ago on our podcast for the movie uh, Detroit Rock City. Have you seen that yes, one? I have. It's a fun movie. It I like great movie.
2: <laughs> but I'm gonna, gonna say also, my father and mother took me to see Kiss December 22nd, 1977.
1: No, I remember. Was, I was that was that your first concert? Was that Kiss? was
2: my first concert. So I was eight. And Billy Squire's band Piper opened up. And I remember being so overwhelmed with the fact that Kiss was like that close to me that I couldn't even it, it was so magical. Like there's not much in life that's that magical yeah. when you're seven years old right. and Kiss is in front of you, you know, and they're they're close to your hometown. That was a kind of a bizarre arrangement.
1: We but. will ask your top five favorite Kiss songs later in the episode. <laughs> oh my god. Because Ben asked me and I also be, I would say one of the reasons I love Kiss so much is because of you oh um, and like I love Kiss it's like Ben's like name your top and I just named like 15 Kiss songs. I was like yeah those are all my oh favorite. my god yeah. <laughs> yeah
0: there's a bunch of great ones um so it's pretty interesting I mean it sounds like these forms of art uh, obviously are very close to you they've had a huge impact on you at a young age age um and i think you brought up a good point too that like it yeah it hit you at a young age i forget where i heard this it's like the music that you hear between the ages of like 12 and 15 it's never going to get that good again it's like it's the truth i still listen to bands from that era of my life all all the time you know that you were listening to back then it's like a nostalgia type thing or something.
2: Yeah, so, and also Chris, a comfort, a go, you go know, when things felt simpler or something, or absolutely, yeah, yeah, one hundred percent. And and with the film thing, I remember I you know eventually I had gone away to film school, and I taught music all my life and played music all my life. And when my fa- when I told my father I was going away to New York to go to film school, and I remember him being like, felt feeling like so betrayed. But I thought, well, you started taking me to movies when I was younger. And now I'm this interested is on you. in it. It's like, yeah, because <laughs> when you're brought up around an environment, you're, you know, with what your parents do or whatever, sometimes you want to you want to venture out a little bit, and that's what I, I wanted to of. do. Yeah. So,
0: so you did go to film school. What I what think. year was was that?
2: That was let's see. Well, I had gone to the University of Delaware as an English major with a concentration in film theory, and I was in my 20s. I went to school late in life because I didn't want to go to college when I was younger. So I transferred to Ithaca College in Ithaca, New York, to finish my bachelor's degree in like 95, I think. So I had two and a half years at the University of Delaware and then finished my final two years at Ithaca. And I graduated in 1997, but I did a semester's worth of internship work at, uh, in uh, Ithaca Satellite Program in Los Angeles. So I lived there for like four or five months.
0: Oh, wow. Like, working on films and stuff?
2: Oh, yeah. yeah. That's how I worked on the Phantasm four, yeah. And then I w- bounced over to uh, Mask of Zorro, where I met this wonderful woman. I know. Named yeah, Meredith Mask of Zorro. Zorro? Wait, what? <laughs> it, was all, it, was yeah. all it was all post-production sound work, but I met one of my, like, my dearest Catherine friends. Catherine Zeta-Jones. What's <laughs>
0: that? She was <laughs> not there. She ben was Harris, not right? there. I didn't like,
2: meet
0: her. You didn't meet her?
2: Damn.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Wait, so no. So who did you meet? Sorry, go ahead.
2: No, so, no, no. A woman named Meredith Gold was my boss there, and we're still good friends to this day. Whenever I go to California, we visit and hang out with one another. But she grew up in Malibu and had worked in film for years and years and years and just had a lot to, to convey to me as a young filmmaker. And she's just kind of a smart, sweet, awesome person. So that was a good connection for me. Awesome. She doesn't work in film anymore, though.
0: No. Okay. Well either way, it's still I mean, it's cool that you created that bond and are still still go out there and hang out with her, it sounds like.
1: I mean, that's that's really cool. Yep. Um So wait, wait Ben, let me give one. So Mal, go ahead. um I've noticed that in uh both of your movies that I've seen with Alms You Say and then to Yes You're Tied is Cold and Dark Star, music is almost part of the storyline with like guitar playing especially. How important is it to you to have that or what? Why is it? Why do you put that in your films? Like, why is it so important to you?
2: Uh, when I was younger, I was very infatuated with the the melodies of early like seventies horror films. But f- speaking of Phantasm, the 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 score was done by a guy named Fred Myro or John Carpenter's The Fog, a score that he did with Alan Howarth. Um, that kind of romantic, dark, romantic, shadowy melody lines that work as a motif. Uh, are beautiful to me because because they even though there's a menace kind of outside the house or outside the cabin, wherever the characters are, are, you know, trying to stay safe, there's some kind of a romance to the melodies that you're kind of inside. You're making love inside the house and later on you might go outside and get killed. But right now you're kind of safe and woolly and like in the womb still. But there's such a beauty to those scores like they're standalone. You could take any of those soundtracks without the film and play them. And they just work. You can play them at a party and you people are like, Oh, what is this? What is this music? And you don't even want to tell it, Hey, it's from phantasm from 1979. You've never seen this fucking movie, yeah. but this, this is a beautiful score. And I just thought that they created an atmosphere that the, that the pictures, the moving pictures couldn't. And I always wanted to make sure that when I, when I made a film, that Steven, uh, Steven Soderbergh's Sex, Lies, and Videotape Same thing, Cliff Martinez score for that film That film, by the way, is my favorite American film sex, sex, Lies, and Videotape um, But the same thing The melodies in that music Really carry the storyline Without it, the film's not going to work The same way
1: Wow So that being said, my question One of my biggest questions I have for you is So you, your band, The Collingwood And you wrote the entire score for the movie uh, The original score What's the process of pairing a song to the scene? Because I, I always have these like this concept, like oh, like oh, I, this song could probably work in this scene, but like at the same, like I don't know. I mean, could you just explain that? Yeah, like does yeah. the
0: movie come first, and then you put the songs to it, or did you write out the album first, and then the movie came along, or is it like a, it's an in tandem type
2: deal? Like these which... are these are good questions because I would have had these questions too for somebody. The band wasn't together at that time. We had had some arguments and such, and I disappeared to make the film. So I call it a Collingwood album, but it's really just me, Rich Dagnars, and some guest musicians. Um, So what happened was— On the whole album, that is? The whole album. I played bass, I played guitar, I sung. Then I think—I God, don't want to forget anyone because I would just feel terrible, but— Jim's not on that one? Jim is not on it wow really pennington's not on that one so um but, that's a surprise uh, before,
1: to me before you answer so the score is of the, of the album of the movie excuse me, is different from the album of the pitter patter of little everything's
2: yeah pitter patter of little everything is that he's on that record okay yeah but the whole band is on that Tide though was just me and rich dagnars and then some guest musicians jessica gray hallie boyle i don't want to forget anyone did gina sing on that one
1: she I don't sang on White Deer, right?
2: Gina sang on White Deer. Yes, she did sing on that one. That's right. Yeah. I forgot. I got that mixed up with Peter, Patter of Little Everything. But um, so the process was I had I had some ideas for melodies for certain scenes like so Colby Bartine is an editor from Philadelphia. He edited Yester Tide is Cold and Dark, sir. We did it over the course of nine months in my little cottage in Landenburg. Okay. In bet- As we were doing it, he would disappear and work on other films, like with Cuba Gooding Jr. and Steve <laughs> no Gutenberg. I'm not kidding. like no he, would, deal. he would disappear like, for like two months and then he would come back and yeah. he would work with me again. But he had to pay the bills. Sorry, so I brah.
0: Kidding. I got to go work with a Cuba <laughs> Gooding Jr. That's what Jr. it was. Yeah.
2: He would go, like, all right, Cuba. There's so much to this story I won't get into (laughs) now, but you guys would be very interested in hearing it. But uh, Colby is an amazing editor. He edited the new Collingwood video, Confetti. He edited the White Uh, Deer video. And he's just a very reliable person. But he lives in Brooklyn now. But so over the course of eight, nine months, we edited this entire film. Uh, He also worked as the second assistant director on the film. So he had a handle on what was going on, and he knew exactly what to do in terms of... uh, making the storyline flow in a way that maybe I didn't understand, you know, when I first started working with him because he was young, I was like, Oh, I would know more than this guy. And then I realized that I didn't know shit because <laughs> wow. he was just better at it than I was, you know? Yeah.
0: Yeah. Some people are um, just so, better. <laughs> they're just
2: better. And he was schooled in it. Yeah. So as we were editing, I would think of certain little riffs that I had on my guitar that might fit over this or that scene. And I might disappear, like leave my cottage, go outside while he was working on something inside and I would write a little something like White Deer. I remember being, I was sitting outside my cottage. He was inside and I was just working on melody lines for White Deer. And I thought this is going to be over this scene or I'd be at accent in between teaching music students. And I would go, okay, I have a half hour. So what would go well over, okay, this little riff right here. And then later on I went and recorded those songs with Rich Dagnar's to the length of the scene. So we would watch the scene and I would record it. And then Rich would plug those sound bites in over the scene. Yeah. 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 And Colby would, Colby would plug in the dialogue and then later on. So you have Colby plugging in the dialogue, which is pretty much sound editing. Also rich sweetening the dialogue and laying in the music. And then later on you go to a post house called, uh, we went to Philly post in Philadelphia and that's like a, they go through, John Baker goes through and his team go through and they sweeten everything in your mix. And that's kind of like a, God, it's like a nine day process and you're there and it's, it's an expensive process and it's boring. Like watching John work is great because John is a Buddhist and he's just, he's this calm. I wish I was that mature as a human being. You know, he's just like this calm dude who really knows his craft and, uh, and and I go God I, I don't know how he does what he does or what he hears what he hears but um, I th- yeah it was neat so that's kind of how it's all done wow. sound wise I think that one was of the incredible
1: name. answer
0: yeah good answer yeah. I think one of the coolest examples of this was when your character was playing the acoustic guitar on the beach I think the song was Henlopen and then it went into the recorded version of it and then it was cutting to um different characters throughout the movie yeah but it went okay. from you playing the acoustic guitar into the recorded version later on i i like how it blended there i'm
2: so glad you mentioned that i'm so yeah? glad you mentioned that because i really like that i forgot all about that oh and really that, yeah that was cool the acoustic version was live sound on the beach it's yeah it difficult. sounded like it and so going into the and I also like to show what the characters are doing in a film. I, I really like that kind of montage style editing where everyone's kind of tied word. together. Mm-hmm. Paul Thomas Anderson does that in the film Magnolia so well. And I i don't know. I probably ripped it off a little bit.
0: Now that you mentioned that, maybe a little bit. Maybe yeah. A little bit. I don't mind. But hey, man, listen, that's I cool. That yeah. I, I love Magnolia. I love Paul Thomas Anderson. I think. Yeah. Uh, Real quick, what's your favorite movie by him? I haven't seen them say, all, but go ahead.
2: I would say, uh I would say uh Magnolia or Inherent Vice, which people seem to hate for some reason. I but haven't I do seen like Inherent,
0: Inherent Vice yet. Oh it's man, it's good.
2: Yeah, oh, I would. I would highly recommend that motherfucker. Yeah, okay. it's good. <laughs> okay, I like. Uh, Am I to cuss on this podcast? Yeah, yeah. This is you a can,
0: curse-filled yeah. show. Um Speaking I like of, Joaquin. Have you, ever, have
2: you ever heard his podcast? Like for Boogie Nights
0: no i haven't but boogie nights oh. would be my number one for him just because it's that movie milk. is just like bang bang it's like like a roller coaster almost it's like and that scene with the the guy dealing them coke and everything and he's got oh that
2: <laughs> it doesn't get better than that man.
0: dude you're like what the hell is gonna mark, happen here Mark man? Wahlberg,
1: he's mark fucking Wahlberg great Lucky mark
0: yeah we could talk forever about oh, Paul know, Thomas Anderson, yeah. but... Oh, Punch Drunk Love. I love that movie by him, love too. I think yeah. that's a top five Adam Sandler movie for sure. Absolutely. One where he's actually playing something different than the goofball comedy guy. Um, there's a little more depth, and and that movie is kind of funny in certain it's ways, me. too. I saw it in the
2: theater. I love that movie.
0: Yeah, it's very good. Very good. But speaking...
1: Go uh, ahead. Let me go first. Do it. Um, that answer was incredible because the only other movie that we've reviewed uh, with a original score written by the person in the movie was Purple Rain. Oh, my so, God. What do you say that
2: about it, that film? I mean, there's so much great stuff in that movie. Well, so I, I know
1: Ben and, I, and myself for sure is I – well, we're probably some of the biggest Prince fans yeah. out there. For sure. Um, the day – I mean, I, Yeah. We'll, uh, we'll, we'll, the, review do, old episodes to feel how, how we feel about Prince. Do, so, do you I, wanna, go go ahead.
0: ahead. I'm gonna. Well, I'm gonna say something. I think that. uh I would rather watch. Yes, your tide is cold and dark, sir. As the movie, more than I would the Purple Rain movie. Like I think this is a better constructed movie than Purple Rain. Now, music. Sorry, I'm I'm gonna have to go with Prince. It's fucking Prince. That's exactly. I know. It's like, but I'm saying in terms of like the plot and the story and the characters, I think this movie had a little more depth to it than Purple Rain, where it's just like, hey, it's a guy that you know is trying to, yeah, the kid, he's trying to get a gig at, yeah, First Avenue, even though. We all know he's got the best songs anyway. You know what I mean? It the like sort doesn't fucking
2: make any yeah. sense. But so do you guys want to know that I met Wendy and Lisa
1: a couple of years what? ago? What? What? <laughs> Shut the fuck up.
2: Chrissy took Chrissy and I went to see the Revolution. She's a huge Prince fan. My wife and she uh, is a uh, heart
1: and ears and. Romance. And I,
2: I said we've got to meet them. And if we meet them, you got to let me smell Wendy's hair as a joke. And we were in the like front row, and I was asking Wendy for a pick, and I think she was very annoyed with me, so she gave me the pick at the end of the show, announced it to the audience that this guy was pestering her. <laughs> then we stood out in an alley. I was fanboying myself to tears, <laughs> and they came out, and they were so nice to us. Oh, well, that's we cool. Got pic- we got a picture with them and all kinds of stuff. They were great. That's awesome. Great. Outstanding. That is an awesome story.
0: It's cool that they were cool with you too. After they really, were about to call nice. you out
2: for be- pestering them, I know, and I was pestering. She did call me out. It was a little c, <laughs> but my wife had me under control, and yeah, she was yeah, watching out. So
1: that is, I mean, she's funny. part of the best band of all time. So you know, well, obviously, <laughs> um, huge, huge Prince fans. Yeah,
0: but speaking of movies, let's get back to the one that we're talking about tonight. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i know terrible segue but whatever we're gonna go with it um
2: Who cares? That's good yeah yeah
0: yeah yeah just having fun here um the question that i wanted to ask you is uh what inspired you to write and direct this movie it, and like is it autobiographical at all because it, it just um knowing keen and talking to him about like your dad and such a little bit, it feels like it does hit close to home a little bit for you. I mean, obviously you wrote and directed it and starred in the movie. So I would imagine that it, that it does. So yeah, you, go ahead.
2: You guys ask great questions, by the way. Oh, thank you. Thanks. Oh, you, <laughs> no, you really do. They're, they're, uh, but uh, it's obviously it's uh, somewhat autobiographical. Um, I wrote the film because I was in love with Lewis uh, and it was it was written as a love letter to Lewis and a love letter to my father. Oh, Lewis I Beach. Part, yeah. So I, I spent a lot of time in Lewis babysitting my aunt and uncle's dog when they would go away. And I would have nothing to do at night. So I would just kind of like walk around the town or go out to the dunes. But I remember one New Year's Eve, I was down there all by myself. I was in my 20s. And I just thought, yeah, one day I'm going to make a film here. I really love how this feels and blah, 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 blah. And then I made Alms, you say, but I knew I wanted to make a feature there. And so that was that was one of the reasons I always felt like there was this brewing undefined mystery in the town that I couldn't put my finger on. Uh, And then I I felt like it should be a familial piece, like a mystery. And uh, I started out writing Yes, Tide about my dad and kind of the experiences Of him in a familial setting where he didn't do so well in the 70s. You know, that's why my mom left him. So I guess in that sense, it's all the biographical. My father made some not so great choices, although he was an amazing guy. And um, so some of that, I guess, is betrayed in the film. And then my character, when I was younger, especially, I was a horribly jealous, possessive boyfriend. Like I was just a bad... Not violent, not aggressive. I was whiny. That's and shown vulnerable. through the film oh, for sure. God. Whiny, vulnerable and needy could be like, you know, the perfect adjectives for me, especially when I was younger. Like, I just gotcha. could not get a handle on trust until I went to therapy. I went to therapy for, you know, probably a good 10 years. Oh, wow. And I saw the therapist that my parents saw in the 70s. Wow. And the guy who financed my film let me know also that he had seen the same therapist in the seventies. Interesting. Wow. I know. And I was seeing him in the two thousands and quite frankly, his name is John Snyder. He kind of brought the story out of me all of actually anything I've done. He kind of like inspired me to put pen to paper instead of doing other things to, you know, kind of damage my lifestyle and, and not go into my own emotional soul and kind of pull things out to create. So, incredible wow that's
0: a that's awesome
1: i mean that's an awesome
0: uh answer there
1: yeah now i have two questions here i have uh i'm gonna start with an easy one and then i'm gonna gonna hit you home with a hard one um the first question so in the trailer for yes your tide is cold and dark sir um there's a great quote in it that i i've looked back (coughs) in my life numerous times i've actually i've (coughs) uh, i would put it as an away message on aim that's how much i like it so much and i've thought about in my let's call it mediocre songwriting skills i've wanted to i've been trying to bring it in um the line is a love uh excuse me a love letter to your oceans your ships and the shadow uh, the shadow in your chest can you explain what that means and where it's from it's from me (laughs) and i think it was just uh
2: love let me think what i I wrote (laughs) a love letter to your oceans to your ships And to the shadows in your heart. So I would assume it's love letter to your oceans, obviously, to, uh...
1: Lewis, it's it's almost advice, but it's also an insult. That's why I'm I'm curious.
2: Oh, no, I want to know why it's an insult, though. I definitely want to hear about that. For, For me, it was like, uh, love letter to your oceans. Anything passing by, anything in the flowing. Same thing with the ships, the people occupying the ship, the people in your lives. And then the shadow in your heart, the, uh... Whatever darkness is there, whatever you kind of have to go into to uh, kind of understand who you are, feel your sadness, feel your desperation, feel your vulnerability. What is it that makes us sad, you know, for no reason, which I think all of us kind of witness that
1: from time to time. I um, mean, in this Damn, case, that's a way better answer. Than I thought you were going to say, holy <laughs> shit. Uh, you
2: know,
1: what 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 did you think I was going to say? I, I didn't. So I took it as I mean, obviously, I love the advice from it. And, and from what you just said, it's like. You're still wishing someone the best, and then you're almost kind of like wishing better for them, is kind of what I took from that. Okay. But I also took from it, like, so, I mean, I obviously, um, as you know, I moved to Nashville for a couple of years. Okay. And, uh, you know, they say, bless your heart. And then people think that that's a compliment, but it's really a Southern way of saying, to go fuck yourself. Oh. <laughs> so I thought it was, uh, yeah, so if you ever hear of Southern, you thought you go to bless your heart, please go fuck yourself.
2: <laughs> it yeah. wasn't that
1: um uh, so that's what i thought it's like you know you know i from so a lover to your ocean so you know i respect like what you're going for the what you're chasing I into re- your ships to all the people you bring around you like yeah it's great but but and the shadow in your chest so, look like, i hope you know you're still a piece of shit after all this a shadow in your chest no
2: it was about like going into your own darkness and like getting being comfortable with your shadow side and sadness which uh, guys have a really hard time with that i know that i did I know. know, I'd be be like sitting up anxious at night, and instead of crying, I would like do everything in the world to try to control my Uh, emotion. You just or control (laughs) control the person I was dating, which is you know never never productive. But you know, and I watched my father kind of went through the same thing, like after his marriage with my mother. And again, I don't mean to betray my dad, but I like to watch. You know, when you watch your parents' behavior or your elders' behavior, it teaches you a lot. I for think. sure you for know, now sure. that you
1: say that i uh i i it makes way more sense to me your point of view of it okay cool and cool. and it, it's funny because i think of all of the times that i spent with your dad and i spent with you it makes it's it's like wow how the the did i not get that like it's like i like i knew what you were saying and i also love your outlook almost on everything um because of our relationship but it's like and it's like it's also like it's so good to see like you know it's the reason that uh I mean it's going to get pretty real sorry guys um like the reason that I try so hard and what I do is because of what I saw in you and your father oh, and like God. that that sorry it got super real
2: no I'm sorry I'm sorry
1: <laughs> that's nice to hear so like now seeing that is just like oh that explains of why I am the way that I am and that's definitely Part of the movie, too, is what
0: your character's father instills in these kids. There's a scene where uh, you're sitting at the dinner table with the parents of one of the kids that went missing and they're like praising this guy. And you're like, uh, actually he's kind of a cocksucker. And they're still like, well, actually he really helped out our kid, even though (laughs) she disappeared for however long, you know what I mean? Yeah. And it's like, um, it it goes along with what Keen is saying that, you know, this, this, that your dad had an impact on him like he yes. did these kids in the movie. That's what I'm trying to say.
2: And and and, and what to, to speak to that a little bit is, I don't know if you guys have ever been in therapy, but everybody thinks that when you go to therapy, you talk about your parents, and this is why you have issues because of your parents. But a lot of that is bullshit. Your parents are your parents, and you are you. What are you going to do from here on out? You can go explore the past all you fucking want, but what's going to happen today? Who gives a fuck what your parents did? Yes, they impacted us in That's some way, point. some sometimes positively, sometimes, sometimes negatively. negatively. <laughs> but at the same Stay time, again for the people in the <laughs> fucking back. <laughs> but, but, what, but what he said to me was, "We're not going to talk about your parents. I know your parents as well, and I got to tell you this: Your dad, who some people will crit- like, my dad was awesome." He made some mistakes but who doesn't and he said to me you know your dad was doing the best with what he had you know so and he was doing a good job he was doing the best with what he could had at that point in his life and you got to be okay with that and i said okay and that was it and he said same thing with your mom you know they were doing they were doing the best to handle their situation so you got to let it go
0: yeah well and and that's a great that's a great point because you know as a kid and yeah, now this is turning into a therapy session, not talking about <laughs> no, the fucking bro. movie. But it's like, <laughs> as a kid, as a kid, you grow up thinking like, oh, your parents, they know everything. They're so perfect, blah, blah, blah. I mean, at least that was my case. And then you grow up and you're like, well, wait a minute. They're just humans, too. Just trying <laughs> to get through. Yeah. yeah. Just trying to get through the day. Just trying to figure out uh, their situation as well. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, Mal, my second question was – There's so a lot of this movie is um, – your character Cliff is referred to as Clay's son a lot. And then there's one point in the movie you where you say, yes, I am Clay's son. Mm-hmm. So, was this a situation where you were referred to as Mal's son and then you brought it into the movie or
2: – That's a good question. Yeah, I was always referred to as Mal's son. And I was fine with that. Like I didn't have a problem with it, but this character obviously does. But at the end of the film, I can't, God, I can't remember who says it, where he says, yeah, I guess I am Clay's son. And and I think at that point, he's kind of OK with being you say Clay's that son. in
1: the movie, actually.
2: Yeah, I say it. But where do I what was the scene that I say it in? I think remember. you are in
1: Whiskey Jack's.
2: Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. OK, so oh, that, that was a great is, scene. That bartender is Alan Burkhart. He financed the movie. Oh, nice. Wow. Okay. Yeah. He gave me the hundred and fifty grand to make the movie. He was he knew wow. my oh, shit. Oh, yeah. OK, so
0: Keen. I actually saw that online that the budget for this was a hundred and fifty thousand dollars. Now, in the grand scheme of movies, that would be relatively cheap, right? Mm-hmm. right? But I mean, just for me, like if I was funding a movie, a hundred and fifty K is still a lot of fucking what money. You,
2: you know what Burkhardt, I mean? Alan Burkhart is a god. I mean, he's like a mentor. He's really helped okay. me out. And, and he was he was a great mentor in financing this film. Like I thought the budget was going to be seventy five thousand dollars, so he promised me that. I said great. I went away on a trip and to New Orleans, you- Orleans with my wife, and then it just as we started shooting, it just went up and up and up and up. And I got to tell you something, he he gave me an ass whooping when I needed it. You know, he would like call me in and go, uh, uh-uh, this is wrong. What are you doing? What? You got it. You yeah. told me this much money. You got to pull great. it back. Yeah.
0: I mean, He's that sounds the sto- That sounds like the story of a lot of movies, <laughs> to be fair, where it's like, oh, the budget is this. And then you look behind the scenes and it's like, yeah. And then the budget kept creeping up
2: no. somehow out of nowhere. It sounds like it's all the time. Yeah. He was a friend of the family and uh, my mom kept asking me to ask him for financing or to help me out. And Alan is a businessman, you know, and he wanted to have a conversation with me about business and entrepreneurship. And he really taught me a ton about not just business, but life in general. And he he felt like a father when I was around him. And, and I miss hanging out with the guy, to be honest with you. He's in Florida now. But he, Alan owned Klondike Cates. He oh. owned uh, a trash company. He owned uh, Placers. Do you know Placers, the yeah. uh, staffing company? No. His son owns it now, but Placers was a huge staffing company. It was like the only staffing company in the no, state for the longest time. But he just – he was nice. He was generous, and he believed in me. And when I needed an ass and he would give it to me.
1: I will say the character he plays in the movie might be one of my favorite characters oh, in the yeah. movie. Just a good, the way he delivers the lines, especially when um, it's at the end of the movie, it's like – that when you say, it's not my girl, she goes, sure she is. It's just I like, love her it punches you right in the fucking mouth. There are a like, t- love him in that, man. Like his demeanor, the way he delivers it, it is your perfect old-timey bartender and it hits so like right in my chest. Oh I my god, it.
2: you're killing me right now. Yeah. He would well, love to hear this.
0: <laughs> That's one of the better scenes in the movie, but I think it's because of you and your character when you go I forget the exact line, but it was like you're the wrong person to say that simple shit, (laughs) like, dude. Because uh, let's just get into this little part that I have here real quick. Your character is um, it. There's moments that are very funny to me, and I don't know if that was intentional on your part or not, but it's very like this dry comedy. And uh, like I was saying about the dinner table scene where you go, no, he's a bit of a cocksucker. Like, I was dying at that. I was dying at the scene where um, the mafia guy, what was his... Call? Oh, t- Tullivan. Tullivan, yeah. 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 He, where he was calling you Junior Clay. I thought there was playing. Junior Clay, and he's t- hitting the tennis balls, and he's like, he's hey, Junior yeah. Clay, <laughs> yeah. and And you're like... This is what I wanted to ask you real quick. When it was raining, well, I mean that that wasn't planned, was it? When it was rain, it just so happened that some days was that, it was raining. It
2: was raining, but but it worked for the scene. We were out there. We we're like, okay. It did, we, well, they, that's what I'm saying. It did because if you don't shoot for a day, it's going to cost you a couple of thousand dollars. So. We shot there. We (laughs) shot and we didn't want to sub a scene. But I thought it was ironic because here's this guy who's a really shitty tennis player, obviously. Um, And he's out there in the rain practicing his bad serve. Yeah. You know? And then he's obviously... (laughs) Yes, some influence on the town, but he's out there practicing this serve in the rain. Yeah, in the you know? rain, and As then he's calling you Junior Clay, tennis, like Junior Clay. <laughs> I know it's ridiculous. I
1: recently picked up tennis last summer, and I do enjoy playing it. I'm terrible at it because I just hit home runs because I played baseball <laughs> for so long. Um, you can't play in the rain because the balls get wet and the cork gets wet, and the ball yeah, gets it sucks. heavier. Yeah, so yeah. Can, so it, it's one thing. It's pretty. So funny. that was like, actually. I,
2: well, I was going to say, Ted LeBlanc is from Chicago.
1: Uh, I l- oh, really? Yeah, I that love- actor is from Chicago. He lives
2: there. He flew in to do the role.
1: I actually, I, and I will say that I think the rain really adds to the cockiness of his character. Yeah. Like, he's yeah. the rich guy. He has the goonies. and like, It's like, fuck man, you, you. I'm going to go out in the rain and fucking practice <laughs> tennis. It's like the guy that, the guy that was obviously it's all bullshit, and then so he wrote the story, and then the guys from the guys from the town were like, "Hey man, that's not what happened." He's like, "No, fuck you guys! I'll be wearing um, wool sweaters on the beach before you guys fucking figure out how this thing actually turned out to be true." <laughs> and like, that's kind of like the, the 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 character that I thought that Carl Tomlin played. Yeah, like, he's like, "I'm the cock. I'm the. I'm, the, I'm, I'm just the a cocky motherfucker. Like, yeah, like, I run this motherfucking place." That's
2: true. And in in Lewis and Rehoboth, I mean, it's based on, I guess it would be a composite of several realtors, but like there are so many realtors down there and people get really upset with them because, you know, they have so much influence and they're just they're eating up all the land. Ruthless. You know, I understand it from a business perspective. But when I first started visiting Lewis, it was I mean, there was like no one, I would walk around you know, kind of tipsy on scotch all by myself, like those scenes with me walking up and down second street, that was me, you know, in the nineties with no date to speak of and no romantic prospects. Like nobody was interested in me. And I think that a lot of the character or the, the, the traits of the character come from those times where I just had like
0: Nothing. No going. Well, I wanted to ask you about that. So sure. uh, so you did say that this movie was sort of like a love letter to Lewis Beach, the Cape Penlope and Rehoboth area. Um, and if it, it said that the movie took place in 2009 on IMDb, is that correct? Uh,
2: we shot it in 2011. I think I might have written it for 2009. OK. Or
0: Regardless, in the movie, it looks sort of like a ghost town, kind of like it did in the off season during that time still. But now when you go down to that area, it's like it's like fucking I mean, it's getting built up every time you go down there. And there's it's like a full year round sort of deal now. Would you
2: agree with that? Oh, yeah, definitely. Actually, I went down there, man, last week. I, went, I took Wednesday off and I just went down for a mental health day by myself. Every once in a while, I'll go down and I'll hang out for the night. I'll tell my wife I'm going to spend the night down there. And she's like, okay, cool. So I'll just go out. It means I'm going to park my car, get a room, have drinks, have food. And when I'm tipsy, I'm going to come back to my room and sleep. Sweet. And it's just, it's, have you ever been to a beach town at night like that by yourself?
1: I have. I'm not sure I've been. I have. It will, it will fucking speak to you, man. It's and that's the best. Kind of
2: where the script came from. I mean, there is a, there is an energy to those empty towns during the winter seasons that just cannot be surpassed.
1: I couldn't agree more uh, with – I mean I I mean, obviously I live in Chicago now. But when I go do my parents – actually it's funny you bring something to me, It's my parents have a house in Ocean View now. Oh, cool. And you say it as View is the town that you move in when you're waiting for your – like your waiting years. I thought it <laughs> was hilarious. Did I say that? <laughs> you did in the movie, yeah. yeah. What did I say? Um, what I, do you mean? It's in a driving scene, and then I, I forget who approached me. Said Ocean View is people waiting for their waiting on their waiting years. It might not be the direct line, but yeah, it's definitely referenced in the movie. Okay. Clever line. <laughs> um, so I thought that was hilarious. But I've only been there one time since I moved away. But I mean, the first thing I did is I went down Rehoboth Avenue. I went to Dolly's. I walked by Funland, and I thought about all the memories. And I go, you know, I I am very adamant on never moving back to Delaware. But if I was presented the opportunity to do something on the trip, I would 100% do it.
2: Uh, to move to where?
1: I would live in. I mean, to do something in Rehoboth, like to do something for the community. Sure, sure. Like open a restaurant where, like, hey man, I'm I'm feeding families. Oh, dude, well, I'll like, you I'll,
2: know. Wear, I'll be your bartender. You just have to show me the craft. I would live down there. We actually looked down there for a while, but to live in the town. Well, the, to to live in the town of Lewis like Lewis Beach or Rehoboth is prohibitively expensive. You have Dude, to live in a hinterland. It's
1: ridiculous. Oh my god.
0: Yeah, it's my insane. God. And it's just going up every single year. It's just Yeah, my, like my, it's my just parents true. pushed
1: me as a child, like as a teenager, to work at, like, yo, why don't you just go work at Funland? You live down the beach, you can party, and you could just yes. ride, you can operate the rides as a 14-year-old. Dude, we, we, the house that we used in that
2: film is Clay's house. That is owned by a guy named Kevin Smith and his wife, Jeannie Smith. Kevin worked for Biden for Joe Biden for like 20 years, retired. This was like 10 years ago, retired, became an ultra marathoner. His wife works at BB hospital. And I had an ad in Lewis paper stating that I needed a house for a film. He called me one day. I was down there with my friends, Mike and Marcy. I was spending the night at this condo. I was giving up. I was like, how in the fuck am I going to find the main house? He gives me a call. He said, hey, we're interested. I went to his house. He said, okay, do you like our house? I looked around. And he said, okay, here you go. Here's the key. Come back. It's this big, beautiful house, house Pilot Town Road. Overlooking. He said, here's my key. Come down anytime you want. And I said, well, you have to understand we're going to be here for, we have like nine days of shooting in your house. He said, fine. Just tell us when. We'll be out of your hair. You can do whatever you want. And I said, I don't think you understand there's going to be a crew of like 10 to 15 people and then five actors in your house he said I don't care he said I don't care do whatever you want and they gave me carte blanche I don't know how the hell that (laughs) happens but most of the film was shot in their house and he's still close friends of mine
1: beautiful house I mean and he taught me a lot about running also he's an amazing guy and his wife is also so one of my favorite sit down scenes is to so to slightly change the topic is no, when you are waiting for your date um I know it's with Chrissy I forget her character's name and I'm sorry um, Maggie Maggie you're waiting and the server comes up me being in the restaurant world that's why I thought about this is um she goes she comes to you you order a coffee she goes to the bar cuz another coffee for the weird guy <laughs> And like I want to I mean this happens in real life in <laughs> like we talk so much shit on guests in the restaurant world. Like, uh-huh. Did you know that writing this scene, or did did you just thought that be to slide in some comedy?
2: I worked in customer service. I worked in Rainbow Records, and when I worked at Rainbow Records in the nineties, we would always, you know, I know this sounds terrible. But you, you slag certain customers like yeah, this guy's the asshole. This guy's the weird guy. Yeah. This it's guy's like high guy. fidelity. Yeah, it's like yeah. high fidelity. Exactly. It's like you talk shit on people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. For sure. By the way, that waitress who said that a a cup of coffee for the weird guy. So her name is, uh, Oh God. Lauren Ojeda. Her uncle. So I said to her, Ojeda, like Eddie Ojeda from twisted sister, the guitar player. And she goes, Oh yeah, that's my uncle. (laughs) Your fucking uncle is in twisted sister. And she said, yeah, it's Eddie Ojeda. And I said, buddy, I've seen him at the Spectrum, like, a bunch of times. So, anyway, that's... That's there's awesome. A, there's another shout-out to uh, a famous yeah. person. Yeah.
1: And it's a twisted, twisted sister. Very yeah. cool.
2: Very cool. There was Z one Schneider? more...
1: Goddamn. There
0: was one more humorous scene that I wanted to bring up real quick um, that had to deal um, with uh, Tullivan, the, that character, where it's actually Keen's scene. Keen, you're in the movie. You play the drummer, in the band of the last kid that was found, um, but, uh, the mafia dude. He, <laughs> you're in a little tiff with him, and he tackles you, and you go. So you're a tackler, like dude. That type of dry humor. That shit was funny to me. Like, I, I'm not bullshitting you. Like, I was like laughing
1: out loud, like, so you're a tackler. Like, that was fucking funny, man. I will say that I thought I also found it extremely like, funny because I do the exact same thing. <laughs> I'm a oh. Somebody. No, 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 no. Like, I will like, oh, you're a, like, oh, you're a tackler? You're oh, a tack- like, like, is that what you do? Yeah.
2: So, <laughs> that was so hilarious. That, hmm. a, a lot of people were, were, they didn't understand the tone of the film. Like, sometimes it's comedic, sometimes it's dark. And I thought, what the fuck is the problem? Like, of course it's gonna switch gears. That's what I wanted. Yeah. That idea. So, Drew, my father, you know, had a barber in the front part of his shop in the 70s and 80s named John Canise. Did you know John or no? No, there so was new new time. Time. I I didn't get there until nineteen ninety-eight. Okay, so Nick was gone. So I think actually nineteen ninety seven, John cut right hair there. in the front part of the barber shop since the sixties. And John would go to the bar next door to my dad's store, which was well, it was Slip Mahoney's, it was Post and Paddock. Now it's Argila.
1: It was uh, the old was... Greyhound for a while too. Yeah, it was the Grey Fox. The Grey Fox. That's yeah, it yeah, yeah, yeah. So
2: he went. Oh, he would go over there after cutting hair and hang out and maybe get a little sloshed. And my dad would join him sometimes. Well, he said one night he was over there. John, the barber was kind of a tough Polish guy. We would always joke around together and he liked me and I liked him, but he was a tough guy. And he said he was over there and a guy was giving him shit. He was telling my dad this story the next day. Uh, And the guy asked him to come outside. He was like, all right, I'll go outside with you. I'll fuck you up or whatever. And they were outside. and He said the guy, John said the guy ran and tackled him onto the ground. And John said to him, is that all you're going to do? And the guy said, yeah. And he was like, okay. And he went back in the bar. The guy <laughs> that's all he did. And, I, and, I, and I, so I used it for the film. Now, this is something that happened like 30 years ago. And I Holy remembered shit. it, but I thought it was so funny. That is that, hilarious. This is what the guy did. He tackled the guy. And then and he was like, okay, that's it. You're not going to hit me? All right, I'm going to go back in, though. I'm going to drink some more or whatever. So that's where I got
0: that from. Uh, that is fucking <laughs> genius, first of all. Secondly, the people that don't get that, like... I feel like they just need that in-your-face type of humor. Like to me, <laughs> that scene was like, like genius, hilarious. Like, oh, so you're a ta- like it's that Office Space type of just like very dry yeah. type Watch humor.
1: Watch that sucks.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like that type of shit where you know maybe like. <laughs> The average person would be like, "Oh, that wasn't that funny." But to me, I was like dying when you're like, "So what? You're just a you're a tackler." I, was, I thought it was fucking funny. <laughs> that was great. That was great. So my,
1: my next question is a little on a serious note. So, um, a lot of I'm sorry, I forget the actor's name. The person that played your dad in this movie, or oh, right, that sure. played that played Clay tired, in this movie. Mm-hmm. So, I when I was watching this movie again for the second time, again, it, it hit a little, it hit a little more closer for home for me. The second time is a lot of your dad's aneurysms were in this movie. And a lot of uh, the things that like his shirt said, I'm a God deal with it. Like I know for a fact that your dad said, I'm a God, you're a God. We're all gods. Was a thing that your dad said. Sure. And then when it came to the, I think it was a Polish interview TV, yes. interview TV, where it's like, I'm not teaching people to be the next, um, for lack of a better term, like the next, I think it was Gary, Smith. Gary Rossington
2: or something. Angus Young yeah. was yeah, one. Yeah. Angus
1: Young, you're not, you're not, yeah. he, he was actually teaching music theory, <laughs> which I think is a thing that's lost with music teachers. And now as a music teacher, do you live by that? Like, I mean, cause I, I as far as I know of what I've uh, witnessed or have been a part of is your dad did, he taught music theory. He didn't teach you to play songs. He taught you to understand the music and feel and love the music sure
2: I feel like I'm 50 50 so I, I I definitely take some liberties to keep the attention of students my dad would probably you know beat my ass for it but I feel like I, I I'm just a little more lenient with that because especially now with the internet and everything else they're just going to go off and do they're going to take lessons on the internet and not really learn the. Th- so if I can like capture their attention and then tie in theoretical, uh, information, uh, along with, you know, song, song work. I think it works together in a, in a, in a solid fashion. And so I try to do a little of both with my students, but what my dad did was much better than what I do, as far as I'm concerned and that go ahead. Go ahead. No, you first, No I was going to say he, um, that the woman who's asking him the questions, her daughter's in the film also. She's a friend of mine, but I got to talking to her mom and I liked her accent so much that I asked if she would be in the film as a Polish interview. And she was like, I don't know anything about it. I said, I don't care. I, I, I want you to be in it. And we just kind of chucked her in there.
1: Yeah. Hmm. The reason I asked that is because I remember so much of that when I was with your father and then again with you, is um, the reason that I actually. right, this is getting pretty real um the reason i approach the things that i approach now especially with cooking what i do now is like there's technical skill i mean you can i mean anyone can cook like and then i could you like anyone can play drums anyone can play guitar but the way that you feel the instrument or that you feel something is different than technical skill oh sure absolutely and i think that that was something that you and your dad definitely taught like you know you know if it was easy, anyone could do it. But you could, I mean, the reason that you do it is because you have, you're a step above a, you're like, it's like, you're not just reading music, you're feeling it.
2: You're feeling it. And I think it's the great way to feel that is if you're, and this took me a long time, ago. I was 30 years old. I went out by myself. I was in Philly and I was at a dance club and there was music playing and I, I never danced to fast music. I thought it was the stupidest thing in the world. And I went out by myself and danced on the desk. I know I sound like a complete loser here, but I was alone by myself in Philly. And I just, I finally felt music because I was always on a stage playing songs and you didn't dance to music. You played the music. Nobody, you don't dance, you play it and perform it. But that really made me understand music. So now whenever I have a chance to go to a dance club and and dance uh, to, I don't care if it's Motown or Soul or whatever else, like. I go and do it because that's where the feeling is for me. And I think that's what you're talking about. My father was a lousy dancer, by the way, but he really did feel music. Exactly what you're talking about. I love that. Um,
0: Yeah. Speaking to that, um, when it comes to music theory, I don't know like jack shit, basically. And it was funny watching... Uh, That character in the interview because he brought up music teachers just sitting down with a student and listening to music, which definitely happened in some of my uh, guitar lessons here and there over the years where it's just like, oh, let's just listen to so and so. And it's like there would be like zero um, musical theory. Um, The thing that I wanted to touch on, though, is the way that that character spoke was like if you aren't in the know like me, I'm not in the know the way that the lines that he was saying there and the lines that your character was saying in the bedroom scene with the mm-hmm. second girl, Alexis that
2: Corona. yeah, yeah,
0: the second girl that was lost and then found, it's like this cadence, like this lingo that oh my god, goes. This is my I, scenes. Yeah, I like. In. I'm sorry,
1: Ben. I um the way that you disapprove, I, I think you say it's B minor seven, and the way you yeah play the B minor is you, seven you something else, or, and you and you go, it doesn't work. It sometimes work. If probably correct, but absolutely fucking not. That shit was, like, going over my head
0: is what I'm getting at. It, when you, just the way that she was talking and then your character was talking, it was, like, the the one, the only parallel I could kind of make was, like, you've seen Clockwork Orange, right? Like, they have, like, their oh, own yeah. sort of lingo that you have to, like, sort of pick up on, like, after a couple watches and, like... So I guess my question is, did your dad, I guess your dad said those type of things in real life and like, what was your character? I understand the overarching thing that your character was trying to say to the girl that that was all bullshit, but getting down to the nitty gritty of it, what was your character <laughs> trying to say as a musician, might I would so- consider myself a musician, I guess. I play <laughs> guitar and sing every now and then i guess no, you're <laughs> absolutely a musician yeah. <laughs> yeah. A performer it doesn't matter what yeah. you know but
2: you're doing it you're doing it yeah but 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 i think what he was trying to say is so in guitar if you get down to the kind of basic chordal scale theory there are certain chords that fit in each key okay. and the chord that you begin a progression with is usually the chord that you resolve to at the end you come back around song. to okay yeah you got to come back if you're going to end a song like if you if you end the song don't fear the reaper you're going to end on an a minor because it's in the in the it's key of key a, a minor. minor but his theory or what you know this 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 young girl is 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 kind of going on about is that there doesn't have to be a resolve you don't have to resolve to the originating root chord you could do whatever the fuck you want to do. You can. And that's what the father's theory is. And, and the son who's uptight and is like, no, no, no. You have to come back to the root to find the resolve. But in saying that, that is the thesis of the film. You have to come back to the root, meaning read roots. You have to come back to your roots to find your resolve. So he had to go back to his dad. Go back to his mom. Go back to his hometown to find the resolve. And who does he find? He reconnects with the love of his life that he's let go because he was a fucking asshole in the past.
1: That's exact. Okay, thank you so much because that's exactly what I got from that. And I'm so stoked to to find out. Like that's what she meant. Because as soon as like as soon as you said that, like I I mean, again, I'm sorry so much. It reminds me of you and your father. It's like your dad was so free spirit. I'm not saying that you are by any means, but it's like. You know, your dad, I would feel like, live by the Eddie Van Halen rules of, you know, forget the rules. If it sounds right, it is right. Yeah, exactly. And um, I when, when you said that and, like, the fact that you pulled the guitar down and showed them that it doesn't fucking work this way sometimes. Uh-huh. And then it ends up working out. I was, like, I was almost, like, clapping at the end of this movie because I'm, like, if you pay attention and you and if you have somewhat of understanding of how this works out, this is an incredible movie. Oh, yeah, damn. It's, You're it's being cool. way too nice.
2: Jesus Christ. I know it's got it, you know, it, and and it's meant to be a little bit of a puzzle. It's supposed to be ambiguous. Well, that's some what, of my favorite. Go ahead. Continue. I was gonna no. say Some of my favorite narratives are ambiguous. If you watch a Louis Bunuel film, there's just shit that comes up. Scenes appear and people appear and then they disappear. And you go, well, what the fuck is that person doing here? Yeah. They have nothing yeah. to do with the film. And then you go, God, is this a dreamscape? And the guy never explains it in the narrative. Just the person is there, and you're just fucked. If you think you're going to find some logic here, you're not. So go home tonight and think about it for the next three hours. It's not going to work out for you. You know. Well, that's what I was going to say, is that was there
0: actual resolve to the end of this story? Because we do see your character, and I think it is your wife's character, right, Mm -hmm. together at the end of the film. But as you just said, is it all a dream? Is your dad in the ocean? Is your dad out somewhere
2: else? It's kind of like sort of up in the air a little bit. And that ambiguity is what I like about the, the script. And I remember when Alan and I were talking about Alan, the financier, he said to me, I'll give you the money. I'm not going to touch the story. You do whatever you want, which is the thing that you want to hear as a filmmaker. Yeah. And I remember when the film played, he knew my dad also. He's pretty, pretty close to my father, but he said to me, it was fucking great. It was way better than I thought it was going to be. It doesn't matter what they think, what the audience thinks. I'm glad that you gave that. You made this movie, but speaking to that uh, toward the end of the film, fuck, how do we get on this topic? We were talking about Alan. We were talking We're about talking
0: about ambiguity and ambiguity, resolve so. and mm-hmm. uh and the so, scene with you and the and the girl in the bedroom and the guitar and the
2: coming back so, around. So to me at the end of the film, yeah, I understand it as this is the present moment. She got rid of the louse she's dating. Now she's back together with the man she loved years ago. I mean that's kind of how I understand it. The father to me always represented more of a force or an idea. Here's a loved one who maybe made some mistakes and did some fucked up shit. However, this guy's got a heart and a love for you and he wants only the best for you, especially now at the end of his life. He's older. He wants to draw you back and, and, and give you a gift. Here's your gift. He's bringing you back to town so you can reconnect with this person that you fucked up with years ago and give you a second fucking chance because he cares about you. He's a flawed character, but who isn't? And that's kind of where the film was for me. That's kind of the gist of the film.
0: I got another you know, question real quick.
1: <laughs> go ahead, Ben. Before I lose my shake. <laughs> oh, come on! What? Really?
0: So she had, uh, she had kids, though, right? She had kids. Are those kids still in the picture? They're in there someplace. (laughs) They're probably in there someplace. Okay. Or did they they disappear? I don't know. That's what I'm saying. I don't know. Maybe they're probably in there. They're probably in there. there. That's fair.
2: fair. And sometimes, you know, fantasy, like it could be read as a fantasy. And a lot of people talk about the father. I think in our cutting, I feel like we made one error. The father is standing at the ocean at night. Bob Stewart is standing at the ocean and he turns around and looks at the camera. And then you see him underwater, and I think people assume that he committed suicide. This character, this father, is way too proud and secure with himself and in love with himself to ever commit suicide. This is not a guy who does that. Okay,
0: so I don't remember seeing him standing by the water. Maybe I mean you're telling me that it is in one scene for sure. Yes, exactly. He's definitely underwater, and I just thought that oh, like he's just like one with the the ocean or so, something or other. I didn't get the, I didn't think the suicide thing at all is what I'm okay, telling good.
2: you. But the one with the ocean thing is a good theory because to me, the father was more of like a force. Yes, he could be tangible. Maybe they're going to find him in a shack someplace 10 years from now and they're going to go, sir, you disappear with these teenagers. You're being arrested, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> but to me also, he's, you know, there's this mythical figure, the uh, the Cthulhu, Cthul- Cthulhu sorry I had some wine but Cthulhu who is this beast this mythical figure who lives under the ocean and is dead but dreaming and kind of controlling the elements like controlling people's lives it's an HP Lovecraft thing and that's kind of how I think of the father this mythical beast Leviathan or Cthulhu but he was a guy who was flawed and who made some mistakes like obviously
1: accepts them he slept
2: and, with some wives. He made some, like, he overstepped his bounds on so many levels. He was very charming, very smart, but also was, like, you know, anti establishment, I yeah. was my father.
1: Um, <laughs> it's almost like it's, like it's, it's an unspoken truth. But like, he's like, hey, man, I might have been, I might have my flaws, but I brought you to this. And then when you're running and then um, you see Chrissy's character and you guys are so in love, it's like, it makes me want to throw up, honestly. But. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Yeah, Chrissy didn't want to do it at all. I just brought her really? into it. She was like, I don't want to do this.
1: I have no interest in this. Really? Because she acts beautifully in the movie.
2: I th- Thank you so much. She worked with an acting coach who was my uh, – b- one of my cousins actually helped her out with that.
1: I mean, her character is so good, especially with – I mean, and I related this to her, I was like, I was like, all you ask is questions. I go, yeah, like in my head, all I ask is questions because all I want to do is solve the problem and not acknowledge the problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was a big question asker.
2: You know, I I could not let anything alone. And I'm still kind of the same way. And I get called out on it. Like, why is it your business? Stop asking me. Not just with her, but with human beings. I mean, if we hung out for a week, you guys would be like, what the fuck is that your business? Stop fucking asking me. I would have been
0: asking her questions, too, if she sat outside the restaurant the entire fucking time of the reservation. I mean, what are you doing? I got I got questions. Yeah, I got questions. To get into the nitty gritty of some of this stuff, um, when it came to filming in the Rehoboth Beach area, like how did you get access to like Green Turtle and those like did that cost
2: money in itself
0: to film there? yeah.
2: Yeah, they were very accommodating to us. And it's funny because I had asked a couple of places in Lewis and they were not getting back to me. And really? I would write to them like, and I would go like, no, this is not just the local yoko making a film. I'm making a real film. There's a huge budget behind this. Well, for, you know, Lewis and mm-hmm. Rehobo's standards. Uh, yeah. yeah. And and they were not getting back to me. And so I said, OK, I went to Green Turtle and they were so Green Turtle was so nice to me. Really? And so they charged me like a very low amount of money. Actually, they char- I think they charged me. I can be open about this. I think it was like maybe 300, 400 bucks a night. And And that is like nothing. Yeah. They allowed us to shoot from six at night until six in the morning. So we would shoot overnights. Mm -hmm. So that's nothing to pay for a location for the night. And they provide was a bartender there. And it was it was good. They were really, really super nice to us.
0: I think it was cool that you were able to, you know, you did say that, you know, this was sort of a thing for Lewis but I like that you expanded it to Rehoboth seeing these local spots like green turtle or thrashers or whatever else yeah. it's like it's it's cool to for me to see it on film and it was cool that you filmed it some in Rehoboth Beach as well is what I'm getting at. Yeah, I
2: think Rehoboth is incredibly picturesque. And then what I would have to do is I would have to go down there. I would make a physical – first I would write to them. I'd make a physical contact and I'd say, okay, so we're shooting between November 17th and December 14th. Sometime during this time we're going to come to you and we're going to go, okay, a week from now we need your spot for 24 hours or whatever. We'll give you this amount of money. And most of them were very amiable to it. Um, the bars in Lewis were not getting back to me, aside from the buttery. The buttery okay. shot, shot scenes with uh, me and Gene Brooks, the older woman mm-hmm. uh, in the film, that was shot in the buttery. They were very cool to us. But okay. some of the bars in Lewis dropped the ball. And years later, it's funny, I won't say the name of the bar, but one of the bars that I asked, they never got back to me. And I went in there not long ago and I said, hey, I'd written to you guys about being in my. They were like, you know what? We made a mistake. We're so sorry we didn't get back to you. And they bought me a round of drinks. Wow. Oh, and I, thought oh, it was the coolest I could
0: probably ticket. I could probably find out the name of that bar because there's not like a whole lot of them in the town yeah. of I'll Lewis. I'll tell it
2: to you after this interview. <laughs> All right. Uh,
0: in the beginning of the movie, your character Cliff is driving to uh, Lewis, K. Penlopen, and... Um, you intersplice scenes of a band that's playing live. And after texting Keen, I was like, is this uh, Chris's band from the past? And he told me, yeah, it's actually your your old band Freak Show.
2: Is mm-hmm. that correct? Yeah? Yeah, it was from a show at either, uh, if memory serves me, it was either McCain or Dickinson High School. Really? I'm yeah, like right down re- the street from Dickinson now. Well, there you go. We used to rent out uh, high school auditoriums and we would do, we'd charge like five bucks to get in. We, we I think Newark High School, once we had 700 people, we would draw so Jesus many people. Christ, and easy. it was great that's because easy. it was, I know, dude. That's it was a huge show, than, actually, for a local never show. never less than 400 and we would make a lot of money as young people and – it, the funny thing is we would set up the night before, we would rent a production company, and then the whole day the next day you would sound check and set up. It was the most grueling process because the freak show shows were huge shows.
0: And I it mean four hundred entire-
2: people, even if you charged them a
0: buck, is still a lot of money for a band.
1: Nineteen eighties. Cool.
0: Like, yeah. So even in the nineteen eighties, exactly. Yeah, more that's more so. so
1: rock and roll. Like that's so fucking rock and roll, right? Yeah. So That's I remember cool. you telling me this when I was when I was a younger age. Like you would round these high school tournaments like for nothing, and then you would play to four hundred some people. And like it wasn't until I played in my cover band to a thousand people that I realized like how many people that actually fucking is. Yeah, I I don't think
2: I've ever played to that many people. You you beat somebody told me we played to fifteen hundred once, and I was like I don't think so. It was like more like eight hundred. It was in Lamore East in Brooklyn when I was really when I was like nineteen.
1: So like when Johnson was our our band that Ben and I had, like we the biggest crowd we had was at the Rusty Rudder.
0: Oh yeah, yeah, probably at the Rudder. I don't like even the, know how many. Three
1: hundred fifty people, four hundred people. I don't know it's how many the Rudder. Stroke.
0: I don't know how many the Rudder holds, but it was. But it, it was packed yeah. a couple. Times. It wasn't
1: until the like the cover band. I was like, I was like, when you played with a thousand people, I go, that's a lot of fucking people. That's a lot of people. I've never done that.
0: Yeah, for a local band, yeah, a thousand people. That's a lot of. That's a lot Huge. of people. Yeah. It's huge, exactly. Um, but the thing for me, I again, um, that was cool that you intersplice that in to the beginning scenes of the movie to show like, hey, this guy that I think you were like what a stockbroker or something, mm-hmm. yeah, in Concha Hawken, uh, that he had a past in this yeah. band that was pretty popular. Among the at least the local area because the Mm -hmm. cop is a fan of you in the movie. That was another great dry humor funny scene where the cop is at the bench with you and is like, hey, they want you to come over for dinner tonight. And you're like, what? This this isn't my thing. This is Clay's thing. And the cop is like, "Uh." Their daughter just woke up in your bed and he's and your and your character is just like dude this isn't my thing like what is going on I here didn't do it. I yeah didn't i do didn't it. do it i i again i just thought that was great when your care when you your your acting was funny man where you're like this isn't my thing i that thought that actor, was great by the way
2: mike mike mcfadden who plays the cop is in a lot of things he was he's in gotham the tv show and uh Oh wow. He He's in some movie with Ice-T recently called Blood Runners and a bunch oh. of other stuff. He's a funny guy. I didn't know much about him, but he's a uh, he's a big metalhead, too. He was a, he, had, he was listening to Judas Priest, I remember, when we were shooting. I was like, get the fuck out of here. You have Judas Priest in your car right now. And he's like, yep, that's what I'm listening to. And I, I couldn't believe it. And also Evangeline Young, the red-haired girl who they see... The first person I saw a her. credit that she was like in the recent Bill Murray movie. She's in a Bill Murray film, yeah. She's in the new Sophia Coppola film, On the Rocks. That's in awesome, a scene with, yeah. And she's great. I wrote my second feature film, yesterday uh, um Last Time I Saw You Blessed, which the money was yanked from me. I'm not at this point, it's in limbo, but I, you know, for the past year and a half, I've been trying to raise money for it or two years and then. My producer pulled out, not the same producer of this film, Alan Burkhardt. He was great. But um, she was just in that Bill Murray film, which I think is awesome. You know,
1: it's That's cool. That's great. great awesome. Last time I saw you, Bless, is a phenomenal name for a movie. Thank you. Thanks. Um,
0: um, spe- Keen, real quick, one more question about this. That I have a Okay, all right. Um, talking about the actors and actresses in this movie, how did you go about that? As just like an indie guy sort of undertaking this entire project on your own, seemingly, like to cast all of these roles in the movie. Like, what did that what did that take? And um, and how, yeah,
2: how did you go about it? So, so normally what you do is you go through a casting director. So last time I saw You Bless, the film that I should be making or should have been making a couple of months ago, we had a casting director named Harley Kaplan. Harley Kaplan would have gotten all of that, those those cast members together for me.
1: He was okay. a great, okay.
2: and, and is an actual, you know, great guy. And uh, I'm sorry to not be using him now because we're not making the film. But for what I had to do for Yes or Tide is I went on to the Philadelphia, um, the Greater Philadelphia Film Office website and I posted, these are the roles that I'm looking for. And I got, honestly, there were so many people Vying for these parts. I'm talking probably thousands. It was ridiculous. And you get overloaded. And this is why you have a casting director, because the casting director goes through all of these people and you kind of like weed out the people who are definitely not your choices and then kind of hone in on the people who are. Um, And I kind of had to do that on my own
0: are they reading your script when they're no. deciding on not, it's just like, it's the people that are vying for these jobs are just like, Hey, I'm up for the role. Like you, you in describe, the blind.
2: Like, I'll, I'll say I need a 16 year old red haired woman okay. who has a bit of an attitude, blah, blah, blah. And you put that out there and people go, well, I'm, you know, 16 um, years they, old. Yeah. My mom, you know, their moms or their dads contact me. And then, When when you choose them, you go, okay. here are your sides, your sides are this kind of a couple of pages from the script that they have to read. Mm -hmm. And so you give them to them and then you go, okay. you have to meet at this location and we're going to do a reading of the script in front of me. And we're going to see if, you know, if we like each other, we get along well. And then you sit down with them. What I like to do is I like to sit down with them for five or 10 minutes and talk because most of them are so nervous. You know, they can barely hold the paper. And you want them to know that, hey, I understand you're nervous. Well, I've been, I've been in the situation, man. So sit down, talk, talk to me for a while. And then they read it and you judge from there. But certain people, like, I knew that Evangeline Young, the red hair girl, like, she was, as soon she as she was I saw just like her, a pro okay, right now. <laughs> Amy Cassida, too, who was the, the woman who was seducing me in her house in Rehoboth, that woman, as soon as she came in, she gave me a reading, Amy Cassida, and I'm not fucking around. When she read it next to me, the intensity of her acting was so great that the fucking hair stood up on my neck and my chest felt like cold. Wow. I'm and it, I listen. I'm away. not.
0: I'm not like. I mean, I'm surprised, but not entirely surprised by that because she seemed like she a pro in the, rocks it. she rocked Dude, she in the movie. Yeah. yeah. Like She's in the movie, ass. it's like, uh, yeah, I buy her, like her. My
1: as top a character three is the uh, the whiskey jacks guy. Your your buddy Alan. Um, the character that plays Jack is phenomenal, <laughs> and then her is my no, is my third. She's yeah, Amy Cast is awesome. She yeah, hammers at home, and I um, love oh,
0: the and, and I love the way as we're on her real quick. I love the way that you. I had to have written your characters' interactions with her because as I was watching the movie, I'm like, are these two gonna like? are these two going to hook up or are they not going to hook up? And again, it goes with your ambiguous type of thing, because I think you did a good job of that is what I'm trying to say is that you did make it ambiguous with your character and her character talking to each other where you're not really sure if they will or not until that (laughs) final sort of encounter encounter. It's the inability to act. My character
2: doesn't know how to act. He can't. Like, <laughs> no, you did a good anything. job, man. No, no, I mean, oh, like, you're his, saying in, in, in the film, like he just can't like act on anything. He he can't commit to these women. He or, or Gotcha. Whatever, like, gotcha. He's just not. He's incapable. He's he's got too much other shit going on, and now he's back in the town where he lost this woman. Like,
1: should he hook up with this woman or not? You know, it's so. Was this like? like be more like my father kind of deal in the movie like, as your father would like you know be kind of like freelance like how you doing like or like would like was that just the character that like, you were playing uh,
2: like in real life or just the character like just in the world just in, in the, the
1: movie, world like, of the was, movie in the world of the movie it was like it's like oh my father did this so like and now i'm kind of back so i'm kind of doing this
2: I, no, I think that my character didn't want to do what his father did, but was obviously attracted to this woman, you know. And okay. he just kind of he was veering in that direction a little bit, and then he pulls back and doesn't do anything, you know. Again, he has kind say, of a...
1: the pullback is. Uh, I like the direction because it's like he's like, "You want to go upstairs?" You said, "No, I don't." And it's like that takes the that, that's the first time I've seen that really ever see the no, I don't.
2: Yeah, and then he ends up upstairs,
0: especially
1: then from he, a guy. Yeah. Yeah. In a movie,
0: <laughs> I'm just I'm just being real. You don't see that no, I from understand. guys. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I feel like I wouldn't have been surprised either way whether or not you hooked up with um the the nurse that you gave flowers to. What was her name again? That you said okay, was the pro actress. Is related. it she...
2: Burl? I think it's Burl
1: or Merle. Okay. She, plays, uh, Merrill. Merrill. Yeah. she plays It's Meryl. Meryl. Yeah. 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 Uh, her acting is phenomenal really. Yeah, I didn't yeah. want to hook up
2: with her. I just I I she was like kind of like a mother figure. She reminded exactly. me of my mom somewhat. Yeah. Was just, she misinterpreted my I mean, I'm sure all of us have been in a situation like that where the person misinterprets and then yeah. And then you're like whoa, You're, whoa, like, whoa, you're whoa. against the, you're against the wall going, No, you don't understand and they're like, Oh, I understand And you're like, No no no, no, I, no, no, don't, no like, yeah.
1: <laughs> I don't want to be with you. I don't
2: wanna do this.
0: So Keen does a segment on our pod called bedroom breakdown. And I got to ask another question about this, because uh, the one woman, the one that also lost the child, or like the child is missing, the first woman that you are in bed with, your shirt is off, and you say... Televents? um tel- no. like,
1: I, I That's tel- who I tel- thought tel- you guys mistress. were
2: talking about. Aren't you guys talking about her, Cassida, Amy Cassida's character?
1: Ben was one of the older ladies. I was talking about the older woman at the flowers. end.
2: Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I know that. But okay, I thought you were talking about when I say that I don't want to go upstairs
1: with the. That was, yeah, that's the. Yeah, same it's the same yeah, woman, okay, but cool, at one
0: cool. point, yes, exactly. Keen did say this, though. You do wind up back upstairs with her, and you have your shirt off, and you say, that's all I can do right now. What is it that all you can do right now?
2: I think in my interpretation of this years later is they probably made out a little bit and he just was not, he wasn't capable. Like he's either physically or or mentally impotent. Like he just, just a little bit of a makeout session. Okay. Yeah. And I think he's back in town. There's that, there's this woman that he left behind and it's reminding him of his mom's death. He's pissed at his dad and God, he really wants to reconnect with this woman who he doesn't even want to think about right now, but he knows he's going to be forced to think about this, this woman maggie who he left behind years ago and he's got to face all this fucking bullshit so yeah it, it's things aren't going to work out for him sexually i don't think at this point i awesome. have
1: one more question about the film and then we can get into like some like actual questions because i i know that ben and i have been wanting to know what bedroom rock means as the conningwood title Where where is that where do i have that so that was um, Bedroom rock did i write
2: that yeah, you did.
1: It, it was just Spark magazine. You guys were in the summer series that <laughs> Justice Lane did win, by the way. Um you clarified the calling what is bedroom rock. Bedroom <laughs> rock. I but guess I, because I just took that I was like, oh, is this is music you fuck to? Like
2: Yeah, I, I yeah, and I know that people will find it you know, find this offensive, but I feel like music should be music, all music in a sense should be music that you can fuck to. I couldn't yeah, agree
1: right. more. I do this whole time, like I, I play, I so I play a lot of oldies. When I'm, I wouldn't say oldies, like I love a, a vast array of music, and like I like to play some, like I can't think of a title. Like, I was go, hey man, people used to fuck to this, like, like, do, tempt- like you, <laughs> tempt- Temptations? like Temptations, Motown, like Temptations. Oh Jesus like, Christ,
2: that whole movement's all about fucking. As far as or I'm like,
1: concerned. um, the longest time by Billy Joel. Like, hey man, people used to get fucked to this. Yeah, like you remember this.
2: Yeah, i was like cool. shadowy just shadowy dramatic music where maybe like the couples had a fight they're standing in separate corners of the room crying and then they come back together and then it was like a little blue haze in the room like from a blue light somewhere in the room from outside or something yeah. and there's this great atmosphere and then they come together and then they fuck
1: like when you when you're writing these songs like, when you're writing a chord like you like you know you like land your finger on a seventh or like something like that like you go Man, somebody's (laughs) fucking to this.
2: Some someone's gonna get pregnant here. (laughs) This this E minor seven to C major seven chord progression. They're deaf. Yeah, I do. I do think about the dramatic side of it and how it has a romantic uh, atmosphere, and that's perfect.
1: With with that being said, do you think Mm -hmm. that you take the dramatic side to life? Because I will say one of my favorite things you've ever done since I met you is you walked out of the music store saying. I'll see you guys in hell, like, casually, and just walked right there. Like, <laughs> Did oh. I say that? Yeah, you were casually walking. I go, I'll see you guys in hell, and just walked right out. Oh, my God. I I must be a horrible influence. I... You're one of my biggest <laughs> influence, so I
0: doubt that. Okay, well, it's funny that you say that, Keen, because earlier Chris was talking about how... Um, the movies that he was watching in the seventies and sort of this movie to a degree, it combined the elements of horror with romance that there was love making. And then it's like, you go outside and then you get killed. Basically you might get killed. Yeah, And that's exactly what the calling would to me sort of is. I feel like it's, The Collingwood, as a band, as your band, it's kind of tough to pinpoint a band that is similar to them because you're very, you're like very unique. Like you look at me and Keen's old band, Justin Swingline. It's like, oh, they're like Jimmy World or oh, they're like Blink One Eighty Two. When I listen to the Collingwood, it sounds very like dark and gothic, but not necessarily like the Cure per se. Not necessarily like Joy Division per se or like there's like a different like funky element to it, but also like a gothic like darkness to it. Would
2: you agree with that? Oh, yeah. I love Joy Division number one. I think oh, fan... OK. Well, then maybe I, I, right music. I feel like we're the perfect match between like jo- Joy Division, Curtis Mayfield. I Amila... mean, <laughs> there, there you go. This... And the early uh, the the fir- the first two Def Leppard albums on through the night and high and sure. dry, high and dry, high and dry. People don't care, but people are like all fascinated with Pyram- uh, Pyromania and, and the the albums. I was the films, the albums that come after that. The first two Def Leppard albums on through the night and high and dry are so perfect. And also yeah, the high band, High and dry accept- would be a perfect
1: album. I'm glad you said because I was going to say High and Dry might be a perfect album. God, is a
2: fucking and like Let It
0: Go. I'm not as so familiar with the Def Leppard catalog,
1: oh, so I have to. Def <laughs> might be the one of the early, best bands of early all time. stuff
2: and the band except the band except to, they were from West Germany. They had an album called Restless and Wild. And balls to the wall. There's still um, actually, the wall, yeah. if you notice in the Collingwood fi- or um, the Collingwood films, and you can tell how much wine I've had. But in this film, you see an accept poster on the one girl's wall.
0: The oh, balls to the wall.
2: Okay, it's in there because I I I loved that band when I was growing up, Uh and I ha- actually had to write to their guitar player Wolf Hoffman, and I asked him for permission to use the poster, and he's a photographer. And he gave me permission. I still have the email, I think,
1: someplace. Oh, that's Floating awesome. Dad also had an yeah. except balls to the wall poster in mouth Music, by the way. Oh, yeah. I'm sure. I remember that. I mean, I do remember every I, inch of that story. But um, I have one more question about the movie. Is um, Cliff has asked a lot about like um, still writing music. Are you still ready? I mean, oh, are you still doing this? You were so good. And this is a question that I'm faced with a lot of times, especially when my family was alone, like, like oh you're still like you're still writing music but there's joy to be found in other things no, oh, is, yeah. that what, is that what cliff found or was cliff so like trying to prove his dad wrong that he became successful in something else
2: i think that that's a good that's a great question uh i think that he was probably tired of music and he wanted to be a balanced uh human being with things like health benefits and um you know, probably a 401k that he kind of disappeared into that world. And his dad kind of had a more lackadaisical flowing feeling. It's,
1: it's something I've kind of struggled with all my life. I don't know how, where you
2: guys are with it, but you guys have. But yeah. um, I would say yeah. um
1: if you're driving, I'm sitting shotgun. <laughs> okay. okay.
2: <Yeah. laughs> gotcha. Okay. So. So, you know, it's, it's, I worked in corporate America. I worked at Amazon.com and I worked at Wachovia Bank for, a while. I didn't mind those jobs, especially banking. Banking was very easy. I got along with all my managers and supervisors. But, you know, teaching music, I feel like I'm providing a real service to people. However, there is a craft in every job. As far as I'm concerned, there's an art in every job, whether it's bartending, working as a, a chef, especially, obviously. It's a craft. It's a craft and it's in the service of people like being in the service of people. I don't care. This is why people like, oh, I don't want to work as a waiter or a bartender. It's like, why? You're helping people out. You're serving people. And honestly, bartender, chef or any of that stuff, it's the new fucking version of a rock star. When I go to a yep. fucking bar and somebody's making me a craft cocktail, I'm like kissing their feet, going, "I love you, I love you, I love you." Can I have another, please? I'll pay double. You know? Yeah, think yeah, there you point go. Point. Yeah. So it's, so, it's, it's
1: funny because it, yeah. it one of the reasons I became a chef is because I was working in a restaurant in Nashville, and I my goal was when we moved to Nashville was to be a rock star, and then the restaurant owner was like, "Chef of the new rock stars." I remember and you saying I, that, Keen. And like now, I'm one of the best chefs in the entire world like and that's awesome yeah and any anything where you're in the
2: service of people and they're happy and they're entertained doesn't matter if you're on stage or behind the grill it doesn't doesn't matter like there's a craft there and you're helping your fellow human beings find some kind of joy that's cool
1: yeah Dude, fucking preach the way that i put it as like playing on stage i, I again you could do it anytime. as mentioned yourself, like i don't do any drugs the best high I've ever had in my entire life was playing on stage. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's it's the greatest thing in the entire world. And the what? closest that I've gotten to fulfilling that is putting out a, a phenomenal plate that I put my absolute all into. Yeah. And it's the same high. like I I get that from that. And that's why I'm so passionate about what what I do is because, you know, this isn't some everyday bullshit. Like, like this is something that I've worked my entire life on. And now that I'm crushing it, like... Y'all can experience. This. I don't think there's anything
2: exactly what I was saying about like going to film school when I left Matt like when I went, my dad was like, What are you doing? You've been in music your entire life. And I was like, Yeah, that's the point. I want to go do something else. Like I'm I'm tired of this for now. My father was like perplexed. And I was saying, No, dude, I really want to do film. I want to do something totally different. I just want to go do something different for a while. Yeah. You know, I, I think there's art in everything, whether it be teaching or painting or it doesn't doesn't really matter you know i watch i i love learning about other people's vocations and professions um i was gonna say to that end how old are you guys i'm 31 i am 32 god but... <laughs> i didn't i didn't <laughs> form my Collingwood wouldn't know i was like 29 or 30
1: oh wow I mean, to paint the picture i met you when i was
2: eight years old
1: huh so to paint the picture, I met you when I was eight years old.
2: Well, there you go. So I didn't even form this band that I'm in until I was like thirty something, and that's when we started. Because I gave up music, didn't give up music. I just did other shit for a while. I didn't feel like doing it, and then I got back together. Go. I was like, okay, you can just step on stage anytime and play music. It's not that hard. You guys already know it. You know it better than trust me. Most of the people that we play with around, like you guys, are 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 just as solid, if not more solid.
1: Yeah. Can you I have this conversation with Mike? The process of, like... So, I, I mean, I'm not trying to make like fun on bad times, but, like, giving up playing out live. Like, does that mean you gave up music for a couple of years? Like, you just stopped doing it, or...? I, it
2: wasn't that I get... I just didn't feel like doing it. Like, I was concentrating on film. I was living in Ithaca. But I did... I didn't bring up a guitar for, like, the first four or five months that I was there. And then when I brought it up, I started writing. And I thought you know what, when I get back to Gel- Delaware, maybe I'll form another band. I don't know. I you know, I was in The Absurd. I was in Freak Show. Or maybe not. I wasn't sure. And I got back, and I met a guy at Amazon. I teach him now guitar. He's a great bass player. He's very knowledgeable. And we worked. He had a drum machine. He had a bass. Started crafting stuff, and then he moved to Seattle. And then I hooked up with Tony Ciani, who t- taught bass at Accent. No, it was my dad's clear. student. Yeah. Unfortunately, yeah. his father just died. Mm, um, oh, but he he and I started writing together. I was like, okay, I'm about ready to do another band. Let's fill in the gaps. Who can we get to play drums and guitar and Josh Hendricks, Hallie Boyle, Jason Ray. And then we kind of started the Collingwood from there. But I was in my 30s. Josh so man. you guys are young, man. You guys have so much fucking time to play music. It's not even funny.
1: I love Josh Hendricks. And I love Brian Aldane. Brian <laughs> Dane. Yeah. You, I just huge impacts in
2: my life. I just did a uh, 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 an interview with Philadelphia Weekly and I had to mention like all of the Collingwood members like throughout the evolution of the band. And, yeah. So and that- how many how many are there? We have more members in the Collingwood than fucking Leonard Skinner, as far as I'm concerned. Like, it just doesn't end. So many members in this
1: band. Because so
2: it's members. always funny to me when I go on
0: a Wikipedia page of a band and the, the past members is like this Ridiculous. fucking long. You know what I'm talking about. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
2: I'm sure a lot of it was my fault, like me throwing fucking hissy fits or saying stuff. Oh, that God. And then it. people just getting pissed I'm, off about it. I'm or lucky whatever. And I not get my fucking teeth knocked out, to be <laughs> oh, honest Jesus with you. Like Christ. some of the stuff I said, like, I can't believe some of the stuff I said to people. Uh, like I, would do, I would never do that now.
1: No. You know, and, and the same about there, Chris. I'll tell you that.
2: What's that again? So we're in the same boat, right there. Yeah, I just don't want to do it anymore. I don't want to argue with Ben May. So your brothers and like now, you know, especially with Jamie Baruch and, and Jim Pennington, we we played together for a long time. Like they're that they're they're my relatives as far as I'm concerned. I don't I want to couldn't piss agree them off with that
1: because I will say that like Ben Young, I would say since that I've moved away is like, dude Ben, like you're not my best friend in the entire world. Like I look forward to talking to you all the time. Yeah, man. For
2: sure. So there you go. You guys can form a band at any time. You go like, okay, in two months we're going to go and we're going to record two songs someplace. You want to do it? Okay, cool. Then you record two songs a couple of months down the road. I mean, it's... We should probably everybody do does that. it in
1: like fragments. The yeah. Afghan
2: wigs live in different fucking yeah. states. I mean... And then they both suck. Like, And then we put them out. They're <laughs> not going to suck at all. They'll yeah. be fine. it will be better than most of the shit out there. Trust me. That... I know, I'm in it. <laughs> yeah, the Collingwood... Getting back to the podcast a little bit.
0: Oh, Jesus Christ. He's broken the the seal. No, I'm Uh done. Okay, okay. So the thing that I wanted to ask was, when it comes to your dad's character's phrases throughout the movie, were they based on actual phrases that he said in real life, or were they more made up by you for the script? Like, for example, the title of the movie, Yes, your tide is cold and dark, sir. Like when the person is tuning their guitar. Because me as a guitarist, I would say, like, when I hear that, I'm like, what the fuck is this guy? <laughs> what is he talking about? Yes, you're cut like what does that even what does that even mean? Like I said, it's like a clockwork orange type of thing where it's like that doesn't make any sense to a normal
2: person, you know what I mean? Yeah, that was made up. That was mine. I made that up. And then No Your Tide is low with Brian, sir, I think it was that. Yeah, so if yeah. So if you're too yeah. low, you're low with Brian. Yes, your tide is cold and dark, sir. You're too high, you gotta bring it back. Yes. That wasn't it? Was some of the phrases in the film were definitely his his phrases. Things okay. that he said. I know you were asking about the interview segment with the Polish reporter. Yeah. About, like, teaching a doctor or a dentist or whatever. He would always say that. Like, I probably taught your doctor. I probably taught your dentist. I probably taught your lawyer. Because he would always teach professionals. And then he would talk about the people that he taught. Mm-hmm. So.
1: So that I, was I, real. Okay. Oh, yeah.
2: That was real. And I think sometimes, like, uh, I don't know if I made this up or he did, where he says, you got to understand, parent, or kids are smarter than their parents. He do- Yeah, he does in say that movie. in the movie. Like, I, I don't know if he said that or if I kind of, like,
0: embellish that that a little bit.
2: I felt like that was his belief system. And quite frankly, I kind of believe that in general. Like when I, I teach a lot of kids and I teach parents and I teach older people. You believe that personally. I actually do believe it. I feel like now, obviously their thoughts sometimes are not as organized as ours are. Well, I don't know about right now, but uh, you know, just in general. uh, But, but I think the kids, because they're so instinctual, they just kind of get it right away. And people are like, they're trying to figure things out. And the kids are like, no, 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 this, this is what's going on for real. And and people, you know, search around. It's like looking for keys. Like the kids know where the fucking keys are, but the adults are like, no, I must've left them in the car. I left them in my pants pocket. And the kids are like, no, they're right on the living room floor. Like yeah. there's something about I, how kids <laughs> perceive the world.
0: You're right. I, uh, you know, I have two sons. One just turned three and my youngest is a year and like a half, maybe wow. a little older. Yeah. And but, you know, my oldest, he'll screw with me. He'll do something where, you know, he knocks something over or throws a ball at me. And I go, why would you do that? And his answer all the time is, for me. Oh and it's God. like, how do I respond to that? It's like, for me. It's like, He's like, fucking trolling me, dude. For me. Yeah, Like I know it's for you, but like, what? Ugh. And then it's just like, I don't know how to answer.
2: This you sounds know? like Dennis Leary talking about his kids. You ever heard me yeah. like Dennis Leary interviews talking about his children? This is kind of the <laughs> oh, same thing. That's funny. Mm-hmm.
0: But yeah, he goes for me. It's like, yeah. I, Ugh. And then it's just like I throw my hands up and it's like, all right, whatever. I, guess. I quit. Yeah, I quit. You just do what you want. Do what I'll you want. Be... Yeah, 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 yeah. But uh, yeah, that was my
1: question on that. Keen, do you have another question here? Um, we can probably pretty, um, wrap the movie up pretty close. This like, So the end of the movie is, um, it emphasizes on you running. It almost seems like you're running away from the problem. Is that the case or? So you, I guess first
2: appearance, you would think that he's running away from his problems. Right. And remembering running down the beach with his father, there's that quick flashback. Right. But then he ends up in his goofy shorts and his little punchy belly. Uh, you know, See, on I the love front, the
1: shorts, so that's why, that was the thing.
2: I I still have those motherfuckers. I buy short shorts all the time. My wife is so embarrassed by them, but Fuck. I'm on the I'm on the front lawn and uh, you know mowing the grass and, and I'm so
1: ineffective. Still, it's like, I who cares? Start, I can't even start the fucking lawnmower. You so know, i' thing with that is is like you know I might be the guy that you're looking for. I know I in your eyes I'm perfect, but I still can't fucking start this lawnmower.
2: Yeah, I, it's like for? okay, we're back together, but I'm a flawed guy and I'm I'm not. I'm not the perfect sexy, sexy hero here. I'm just a, a dude, just a know? guy. Yeah. There you So go. I hope you're OK with that. That's kind of how I thought of it. You know, I, it's not like they're kissing on the front lawn. I remember Alan and I were discussing the ending of the film and he was so cool. He said, you know, in, in the perfect world, you know, you would make this film and the father and son would have this joyful reunion or tearful reunion at the end of the film. And he looked at me and he said, I know you're not gonna fucking do that. <laughs> I said, I'm not. I'm not gonna make that movie. It's gotta be something that where that doesn't happen. You know, I don't have any problem with films like that. Like, you know, I, I'm I'm I can watch standard films. I'm fine with them. I love a lot of them. But uh I just didn't want to make one with this. I'm glad you didn't do that. I
0: was
1: the, uh, I was the, I'm glad you did I'm glad do it do didn't finish like that. Yeah, I feel I'm like glad it was I mean, different. Honestly, if you feel like, I feel like it's a waste of time if you finish it like that. Yeah, because then you know what's going on. It's kind of right. like it all, it has to work out. Like, no, so it's it like, oh, like that
0: everything sometimes. is great in the end and it works out. And it's like, I don't know. I like that you kept it true to your vision instead of, you know, and I, this is a point that I wanted to make earlier where, you know, these mainstream movies, there's a lot of people that metal in like with what's going on. And it's like, Oh, we got to hit this demo and we got to do this and that. I like that. It's a clear cut vision from you. It's like an auteur type movie. You know what I'm saying? That makes me um, good. That's so, what I'm saying, so yeah,
2: I, I like that. The, and there's a lot of things that I kind of ripped off. Like, you know, Peter, Weir speaking of dead poet society. He made a film called Picnic and Hanging Rock. Have you ever seen that? No. no. So that's about a group of missing girls. And then there's, there's La Ventura, the Michelangelo Antonioni film. La Ventura, uh, also an influence. Like a, a woman goes missing and like the first part of the movie they search for. Her and then it's like, oh, she's missing. OK, let's carry on with the story. And you never kind of. Refer <laughs> oh, to wow,
0: I never. But got... <laughs> that,
2: I think that's so interesting because it's just uh the audience wants to go, okay, we're going to find the woman at the end of the film. It's like, it's not even any, (laughs) we have other shit to do, you know? And I always thought that was so interesting in films when they work against convention. So I wanted to kind of capture some of that shit. And then uh, Alan Pakula's Parallax view, like the, you guys had asked about the men in the room. I did. Yeah. Yeah. So, so so I, I feel like they're the representations of the sins of the father, uh, you know, kind of come to visit the sun yeah. in this place. And the brom- the uh, bromides that he has to, the bromides that he has to um, kind of surmount to find the girl. Like he's got to go through he's this He's got to go bullshit. through this shit to get... Yeah. He's like a Greek hero. He's got to do this bullshit and get his ass kicked around a little bit before he can get close again.
0: That brings up yeah. another question because what leads you to one of those encounters with the men that have their backs turned to him is when you um, your character is told that your dad is basically buried down in the beach, and then they dig him up and then it ends up being this, like this Santa Claus doll. So can you explain <laughs> that a little bit? Like what like, what was that? Was that a prank from the dad character? Or was that, like, what did the Santa Claus represent exactly? Because he knows exactly where to go after that,
2: your character does. So the Santa Claus, if you look at the opening credits of the film, you see a picture of my character and Maggie's character in our youth, or in in our 20s, with the Santa Claus Claus at the beginning. And he talks about how his parents had a fight about her his parents had a fight about taking the Santa Claus down on the 4th of July. It was still hanging out on their lawn. Okay. And so it it represented when they were dating. So these kids who the father disappeared with have buried the Santa Claus. Everything is a ploy to get clay back to this girl. Yes. That's kind of like the gist of the film. Did they plan it? Did the dad plan it? Who knows? But. There's a bunch of fucking cops digging into the sand on the beach. There's all these people around that all they come up with is this, this like the Santa button.
0: Claus that connects your character Cliff
2: to her name is Maggie. Maggie. Right? Yeah, yeah. And also, I felt like you know, with the Santa Claus character, with Christmas in general, you know, that was probably the time when our family felt closest and most like a family. Other times it was so fragmented. There was so much shit going on in our household in the 70s. But so that kind of meant something to me. Plus, I like that kind of holiday iconography. I just, whether it be Easter bunny, because there's a certain magic in that. Now it's buried in the fucking sand and he's walking through the pine, you know, the pine barrens with it or whatever. And I just thought that was kind of striking imagery and I wrote it into the film. So
0: awesome. Great answer. That's
1: incredible.
0: Uh, uh, Good. That's very creative and good answer. Keen, I don't know if you have another question or not. Not at the movie, but we can go
1: into the other questions.
0: Well, wait, I got one more question about the movie. Okay. Then, the last one, the tape measure. I got a tape measure right here. Can oh you explain God. that
1: a little bit? So yeah. more. Before Chris was. There, I want to say that I, the way that I think the the tape measure is. Uh, I think it explains you know, describes the way of like um simplicity, like simplicity, Sim- simplicity. Multiplicity, where it's like the little things in life can bring you so much joy, is what I took
2: from that. Hey, that's a great way to think of it because when you were a kid and you had a fucking tape measure in your hand, it was yeah. like it was the universe at that point. Right, yeah, it's not like a tape measure. It's,
1: it's so much more than that.
0: Yeah, it's like man. It, well, the kid does it in the movie. He's just like
1: swinging it around. It's Spins like it whoa, around. this yeah. is cool, you know. It's like, oh, this has got a little weight to it, you know? And then you end up using it as a weapon in the movie. Like, Can you describe the whole process of where it yeah, gets what... from to that, a that tape measure from, to a weapon?
2: From me going down, like I was driving back and forth to, to Lewis and there's a neighborhood that I passed. And at one point I had this image of a kid taking a tape measure and swinging it around, like like just swinging around in his yard
1: in like slow motion, every kid has ever done ever. Do oh, exactly, yeah. my but my son like,
0: does it
2: too. Yeah, <laughs> you
0: know, like the screws the sound around of like
1: it. Monks or like Buddhist monks, like
2: chanting over it. And I thought, I'm going to use that in the film in some way, shape, or form. I remember thinking that, and then when the and I thought, well, this would be a memory for the guy. Like he was driving down the day that his mom died, and he passes this when you're feeling like at your saddest, you recognize this other shit going on in the world that doesn't even feel like it's part of your life. But like, here's this kid just by himself, which is kind of sad. You know, when you're a kid, you have nothing to do. You have a fucking tape measure. And sometimes you just feel sad for no reason. Well, I do at least. Um, and and you're like looking at this and you're going to see your mom's body, you know, and it's like, oh, my God, this yeah. kid is so innocent. And I have to go see my mom's body at age 40 or whatever. And it's a memory he had. And it happens yeah. to be this woman, this woman's son. Later on, he finds out that it was her son. And then he ends up, you know, ends up being one of the the sons that his, his father disappeared with. But. That's one thing. So he when he goes to her house, he recognizes the house. He's like, do you have a tape measure? And it's just a memory that he's just a connection with this woman. It's kind of ethereal and otherworldly and weird and kind of hard to figure out. But the other way of looking at it is, is does he measure up to his father? Wow. There you go. There you go. And probably not, you know. I don't feel like I measure up in so many ways to my dad. Like my dad was magical. Like there was certain, certain things about him that were really incredible. So I, I'm just not there like in the way that he was.
0: Yeah. So, well, I mean, yeah. And, uh, it definitely carried with cliff because in the very, I think it's the very beginning of the movie when he's driving down to the beach, he's at one point he just stops off on, I think that's, I think that's route one. He it's like one. gets out yeah, of the car one. and he's like, he starts playing with a tape measure. I think that's at the house where he must've saw the kid.
2: Yeah. Playing, playing with it. And again, it's all this shit that people have to put together, but yeah.
0: Well, that's what I like about the movies. <laughs>
2: you know? Yeah, it's good.
0: Um, so Chris, we've talked about your film, uh, for a long while now. We've been at it for two over two and a half hours, probably is and, what and it's a lot, a like.
2: lot of time spent in wine and beer. Yeah,
0: wine and beer. It's been a great. I've been having a fun time. So it's, it's been way great. too it's, fun. It's a, it's yeah, the yeah, it, yeah. That's exactly it. But um, when it uh, well, first actually, Keen, I wanted to ask him this. For him personally, does the music make the movie, or does the movie make the music in this film?
2: And is that a comp? He gave a face that it's a complicated <laughs> Very question. Answer, yeah. No, I feel like when I wrote it, I had different music in mind. Like I was writing to, like for instance, at the scene in the grocery store where I kiss Chrissy. Yeah. And there's guys with razor blades. Razor blades in his hands. That, yeah. I I pictured a fire. You know the band Firefall. No. There were a, they have just a strange way of telling me you love me. You ever hear, just remember I love you?
1: No, I'm going to have, have to look this all up. Right.
2: All these 70s Yacht Rock songs. That's what I wanted to use, and I wrote to oh, fire. Oh, like was Christopher so
0: much... Cross or. Chris Cross. I kept
2: bringing up Chris Cross. So actually, I saw him open for America. I actually went Oh, show. really? Yeah, they were Silly. so cool. Really? takes me away yeah yeah there you go so anyway uh, and it was just too complicated there was also a Joan Baez song that I wanted to use her version of Babe I'm Gonna Leave You which is the most haunting fucking thing on the planet like no death metal band can hold a candle in the house creepy that her version of that song is. Okay. And I was going to use it in the forest where the cra- the guys were walking across the path and yep, the tape yep, yep, yep. yeah, yeah, yeah. And there was her lawyer was in, then he was out or H it was just so much bullshit. And I thought I'm not doing this. So I wrote my own kind of version of it. And then Jessica gray sung on it. Okay. Um, but for me, the story just told the story. You know, the music was important, but not as important as the storyline itself.
0: So the movie is what was the most the important music. in the... For me, yeah. Okay. But yeah. I do
2: that I would color it with melodies and guitar music and stuff and make it you know, palatable and interesting. Yeah.
1: Keen, how do you feel? It's hard to say because, I mean, I went into this movie not even thinking about our question of what the music made or the movie made. But after hearing Chris say, I will say the movie definitely made the music.
0: I'm going to agree
1: as well. I'm not going to go against
0: it. I think you could probably, as you said, Chris, you could probably insert some different types of music here and there. And the film itself could still stand on its own and tell a very complex, in-depth story with a good storyline you know Uh, yeah uh i i think that's how it goes for me um but my other questions were like what are your musical influences and what are your your movie influences like uh, like top five directors top five music artists let's say if you have them off the top of your head or just like a handful of
2: of either or can I just throw a handful out? There? I actually wrote them down. Oh, did there you uh, go? Great. That's what I'm looking All for. Right, Here so, we go. So, so film influences. I would say Woody Allen, David Lynch, Paul Thomas Anderson, Louis Buñuel, Mike Figgis, Robert Altman, Michelangelo Antonioni, Eric Romer. The first two Steven Soderbergh films: Sex Lies and Videotape. My favorite. American okay, film. can
0: I t- can we touch on that movie real quick? Sure. I've sure. heard
2: that that is a
0: favorite by other podcasters that i've listened to and i still haven't seen the movie myself yet but i hear it's like really good and you it's, just said it's your favorite american film it uh, is, and what it, what is it about that film without spoiling it that
2: it's, it's that people you love? it's people complicated individuals as we all are and we all are uh talking in rooms in Baton Rouge, Louisiana and restaurants with this beautiful moody music playing over top and you have an aggressive character and a passive character and then male and then you have an aggressive female and a passive female. And it's just its just a great contrast of personalities and hearts and relationships and familial differences and it's just there's something about it's a very really quiet film there's no sex in it i won't say much about that i shouldn't have even told you that because now you might not want to watch it but no i'm it's still interested quiet, it's just a quiet dark film that steven soderbergh made and i watch it and i get wrapped up in it every time and i wish i made that motherfucker i just think yeah. it's a perfect i think it's a perfect film and I think so many and other and films. James probably, Spader is in it, right? Spader is in it. Now, mind you, the hairstyles are dated. The clothing is dated. But you kind of get past that within about yeah. five minutes. And Peter Gallagher, who I love. Oh, oh really? Okay. Lara Sanja Giacomo. I can't pronounce it, when I've had too much wine. And then Andy McDowell's in it. It's just a great picture. I, I don't know what else to say. It's, and it reminds awesome. me of just like an afternoon someplace. And and I, somebody was telling me that um, Soderbergh wrote it based on co- – this is just – this breaks my heart, but it just makes me feel something. Like this is what real cinema is about to me. Soderbergh write, wrote it based on conversations he had with a woman – in the afternoon in her living room while drinking martinis on a daily basis. They would get together in the afternoon in her living room, just a domestic boring space, drink martinis and talk. There's something about that. like. It's, Obviously it's not the most exciting thing to to bystanders or people watching, but there's something about like looking in the window, like what are they saying? What is this about really? Like there's a surface conversation, but what is the underneath? What's going on underneath? It's a very
0: real. It's oh, just yeah. real type of conversation like getting to the core of what what things mean, what life means, what all what all is going on means i think is what you're you're sort of getting at in what this movie is sort of portraying yeah, in a way
2: subtext to everything
0: yes and i think that's what your film got to as well is that like you know there's a surface layer to the kid just swinging around you know his tape measure but there's
2: something underneath of it sure that has a deeper meaning to it. Just the domestic activity. Any domestic activity, if you watch it for long enough, it's going to take on a new meaning, as far as I'm concerned. yeah. Yeah. A lot of French cinemas like that also. It's like people watch it, and they're like, I'm bored, and I'm like, well, wait a minute. Give it a little bit of time. and Give it 45 minutes, and then tell me how you feel. 45 minutes into this film, tell me you're going to get up and fucking walk out. You're not going to. You're going to start to feel something after a while. Yeah. because for people like you and I, it's not like there's no explosions or anything. It's just... People talking in rooms, they're complicated. They have relationships. They have, like, obviously crisis of the heart or whatever else. And then something else erupts because you're sitting there watching it. And then the filmmaker's responsibility is to, like, elicit some response from you. And he he or she is about to do that. So,
0: That's what I love about Tarantino's movies. It's not necessarily the, you know, the -the over-the-top action scenes that he sometimes throws in there. It's the scenes that he has at the diner or in the car where it's talking about simple shit that uh entertains me and makes it feel like like real it mimics real life in a in a sure way, you know what I mean?
2: You can go into your bathroom and still feel like you're in the movie. That's what I like about especially films where there's yeah. just not a lot of like flair. It's just Yeah. Feels like you're just waking up and sitting on your couch talking to people. So Yeah.
0: Um, I I might have cut you off though when you said Sex Lies and Video the guy that directed Sex Lies and Soderbergh. Videotape. What yeah, Soderbergh What was there any more on that list? Uh, I like that-
2: uh, I like the underneath by him. Uh, I like Alan Pakula, the guy who did Parallax View Clute. Um, I think I mentioned Eric Romer, Peter Weir, who did uh, Picnic and Hanging Rock in the Last Wave and also directed uh, Last Poets or Dead Poets Society. Oh, there you go. Yeah. I lo- I, Dead Poets
0: Society is a really good,
2: solid yeah. movie. There yeah. there are some contemporary directors who are good, too. James Gray, who did We Own the Night and the Yards, I like. I and know, Ivan Reitman's it. son, Jason Reitman, who did uh, Young Adult and Up in the Air, up I in the Air was a
0: cool films. movie. I saw that in theaters. That was a cool movie. It's I like perfect, that one. It's a
2: perfect movie, and I love. I know I post about this all the time, but this film called The Love Witch by this woman Anna Biller. It's I don't this know, great. Heard of that one? It's a great feminist horror film about a love witch, a woman who like makes love to men and then kills them. <laughs> oh shit! It's it fucking great. You are gonna love it if you get like you get some wine, get some food, and yeah, fuck and just guy watch guy. it. My wife bought me a copy of it and then bought me a bunch of other shit related to the film. Like, that is kind of like my cult film gotcha. of the year and, and the past couple of years. Um, do you
0: have any more uh, movie people or do you want to get to the, your music influences here? talk about
2: music. Yeah, uh, yeah.
0: So Kiss, obviously,
1: you I'm mentioned earlier.
0: You want to talk about Kiss? Keen, you, you asked for the top
1: five songs i got a heat for liking kiss because i think kiss is phenomenal um i I like kiss too man i like Kiss a lot but i mean so let's let's get your top five kiss songs i know that do you love me is probably top five right
2: well i don't know like there's so many like i kind of like i like the kiss up to like 1979 and i saw them in 77 79 and then a couple of other years in the 80s and then the reunion tours um and I love Paul Stanley, like his solo album, the first one from 78. Every song I love on that thing. So, Do you think nice. Paul
1: Stanley is one of the best frontmen of all time or no? Oh,
2: my God. Yeah.
1: His his voice is my favorite rock and roll voice. I will say that he embodied the frontman more than – Oh, me. yeah. Like other than like in my own opinion is like Freddie Mercury, Roger Daltrey. There's hard – Roger about Daltrey I was going to mention, obviously. Yeah. Paul Stanley was a frontman. Oh, yeah. Yeah. For sure, and
2: that guy, yeah, that guy. You, you probably don't know who this is, but Eugene Hutz from the band Gogo uh, Go Bordello. Have you ever seen that band? No. I know
1: <laughs> of the band. I've never seen Gogo
2: Go Bordello that. is a kick ass motherfucking gypsy punk rock band. They are so good. That guy is I have killer. To check them out. Oh my god, I'm so jealous of them. They are so good. But uh, yeah. So so the top guy, I, I, geez, top five Kiss songs off the top of my head. Just I would throw say like I stole some love. out there. All right, I stole your love. Black Diamond. Black Diamond. Hell yeah. 100,000 years. Tonight you belong to me off of Paul Stanley's solo album. Uh, and god, let me think. jeez, uh, jeez. Uh, I would say something like Deuce. Deuce is a good song. See, so you're yeah. a true fan cuz you're
0: you're going your with deal. the deep cuts where deep cut as cut. I'm like Deuce. just a uh a normie fan where i'm going with like the hit songs like strutter or whatever I, the hell strutter. Else. I mean strutter's a great song but you hit with a bunch of uh deeper cuts that's cool though i like it got to
2: I choose like is another one got to choose i love got to choose runs through my head quite a bit
1: um so can we talk about as a guitar player and um actually as one of my favorite players, can we about did you have a any influence on eddie van halen I, I didn't. I had the first two Van Halen albums. My,
2: my dad got me the the first Van Halen album. I got Van Halen two, and I bought Women and Children First at the mall when the day that it came out. I remember, or one of the days that it came out, for five ninety nine on vinyl, and and I never warmed up to that record. Five uh, ninety nine, cheap price. I know, she's <laughs> on vinyl. But I love the song "Women in Love" by them. Do you know that Great song? song. Yeah. That's my favorite tune by them. And I almost wish yeah. that most more of the stuff was like that. However, now Eddie Van Halen's guitar play was never my favorite guitar playing. I know he's like better than almost anyone, you know, and coming from a guitar teacher. Like I'm, I'm being honest about that. And he was so inventive, but there was something about, I didn't understand where he was coming from, you know, as a, as a performer, but, but a lot of people do. And, it, and it's, I think it's a, a playing that, or a performance that's kind of more, uh, Geared toward having only one guitar player in the band, and most of the bands that I listened to had two. So that's what it was. It was kind of like the bass player played one thing and Eddie Van Halen played something else, and it always seemed disjointed to me. But I thought he filled in the gaps in a very intelligent manner. You know, so that's kind of what I I gleaned from any of that material.
1: So this is a question I asked a lot cool. of my musician friends: yeah. Is what do you think is the best American rock band? Oh God. I, I can't. I think I think Van Halen, Guns N' Roses and Kiss are probably
2: some of the best American rock bands. I, I saw Guns N' Roses in the 80s at the Trocadero.
1: Wow. And was, a girl that fun I fact knew. fact was the Justice Vines' first show ever was at the Trocadero. Oh, my God. I've never played um,
2: there. You, so you guys are more famous than I would ever be. <laughs>
1: we played uh, in the upstairs bar. We played the, the
2: no, good. upstairs good. Oh, wait, yeah. You know what? We did play there. We did play the upstairs bar. But it doesn't matter. Like, sorry, right, so we're both famous. Um, <laughs> according to our parents. Yeah. But the, the um, Guns N' Roses, my friend, a girl that I hung out with when I was way too young, married the drummer from Guns N' Roses.
1: Uh, Matt Sorum, or are we talking about the Cocaine Act? What's his name? Uh,
2: Steven Adler.
1: Steven Adler, Oh, yes. Steven Adler. Adler's he was on yeah, one of those VH1 shows. Actually, I was in a band... Um, with Chris Horn, who was in yesterday. We, we opened up for Adler's Appetite with was the, w- uh, the tour name was lucky to be a live tour. Oh my God. Uh, I thought, I thought we were way better, but personal pains alone.
2: Oh, that's interesting. I didn't know anything about that. I think yeah. she divorced him though. She was a girl from a woman from Delaware. She was cool. I liked hanging out with her. Um, But I, i did see them at the trocadero and they were fantastic they were on their game at that point it was amazing it was astounding that band I
1: think chips enough from enough's enough the band in the 80s was on. yes i remember how they who they were yeah they they soundtrack with mr brownstone i thought that was awesome but the rest of the show is very sad bad oh
2: that's a shame well i you know greatest american rock band i mean it's it's just so tough to I mean, I, I, I really like, you're going to, you know, I, I love, and they're not all American, so maybe not, like Fleetwood Mac, I dig. Uh, oh, I like I, I would Mac. say
1: Fleetwood Mac's one of the best fans of all time. Especially, yeah. like, there's a Peter Green version,
2: and then there's, like, the Stevie Nicks and Lindsey Buckingham yeah. version, and then also Bob Welsh, and uh, who's the other dude they had in there for a while? Oh, Jesus. I can't remember. I don't
1: know. I mean, definitely English, right? Pretty 30- much. Beach Boys right. is
0: also in
1: the conversation if you, call,
0: yeah, if you count them as a rock band, but yeah. I mean like Pet Sounds,
1: arguably I mean, Pet Sounds. the best
0: the perfect album yeah. of all time. But so Also,
1: is Prince in the conversation? Sure. If like. you count
0: him as a band,
1: I guess. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's this, to- is a, I, this is playing a favoritism. Aerosmith. Aerosmith is great. I hate Aerosmith. I don't like the newer hate stuff. Hate them? Okay. I don't hate them, but I'm like, I'm so tired of Aerosmith.
2: Personal like preference.
0: Uh, the Cars is one of my favorite oh, American I mean, bands. Those, those
2: first, two, those first two cars, dude. Right? It's a hit. It's like every song is a fucking hit. <laughs> how is somebody that smart a songwriter? Like, I'm not that fucking smart. I know.
1: Like, it's how can like, I write
2: like, moving and stereo? Yeah. I mean. Give yeah. Me that.
1: I mean television fucking second, ridiculous like, television
2: from delaware yeah from man delaware. they went to sanford also i think they might have they did Rich. i thought yeah, they Rich. did yeah.
1: but that yeah television i another remember ben game. young showing marky e. moon like i go this album is so good like, yeah, yeah like, what
2: is that so, the song elevation like where, where does that song come from i don't, I don't understand how someone writes talking that. heads they were around the same <laughs> era that's not a yeah. great band Why, who do you think your favorites are? You said Van Halen, and who else?
1: My favorite American rock band is Van Halen. Okay.
2: Van Halen. I love Van Halen. I think.
1: um... Dude, those
2: first two albums are killer. Actually, even. uh, What what was the uh, fourth record? It's so
1: 1984. What's the one with Mean Streets on it? Uh, Let me pull it up. Uh, Women and Children First.
2: Yeah. No, Women and Children First, and then what's after that? Fair warning. fair warning, fair warning. 1981, so fair in- warning. 1981, fair warning. Album is so interesting. Yeah, it has uh, Uncha- Unchained Main Street,
0: Unchained. Yeah, Unchained. Yep.
2: Oh, don't get me wrong. I love some of those. I love it. Like from the first album, got its comic punk. atomic punk.
1: Comic punk is one of the best songs of all time. It's just so underrated. And
2: songs like uh, On Fire, Light Up the Sky. Light Up the Sky. I
1: told Ben, it didn't even help. So that, like, oh, yeah, Sky's you my did tell me favorite. That It's that my favorite Van Allen songs dude, I did not know it.
2: Dude, those first two records,
1: I don't know what to say.
2: They're so goddamn good. And it's not... I just, for some reason, I started to get into other stuff. That's all I can I started listening to Cars, like you mentioned, Super Tramp. Yeah. yeah. Oh, Super Tramp's great. What,
0: but off of the top American band, though, you're personal influences overall what would you say
2: like now or from when i was a kid
0: from uh i don't know for both i guess <laughs> <laughs> Actually, <laughs> like uh, <laughs> like you, you gave it you gave us like a a big list for directors so what would your list be for bands overall
2: now I you know, I, I love the Afghan Whigs and Greg Dooley, the Twilight Singer stuff. I love this guy, Terry Reed. Terry okay. Reed was supposed to be the singer for Led Zeppelin, and he told them no. But oh. he wrote this seminal record with Graham Nash from Cosby Sosa Nash and Young called Seed of Memory. And that record speaks to me more than like almost any record ever created. So Terry Reed's Seed of Memory. I love Antarctica, this band from Brooklyn, who's no longer together. They have an album called 8103 that I love. I love uh, this guy, Mark Nelson, who uh, created the band La Bradford. He has a project called Pan American. He lives in Chicago, actually. Oh. Look him up. Yeah, I That's love uh, name. uh Mark Nelson, Pan American. Um, Curtis Mayfield, I love. Um, and recently, I really dig Joni Mitchell a whole bunch.
1: Oh, my God. My, there you go. My, one of my best friends loves Joni Mitchell.
2: There's I don't know how you write an album like Blue. Where the hell does that come from? How, how does someone get that bright that they can create something like that? I'm just I'm not there.
1: Uh, Jim Pennington saying that Clarity by Jimmy Rose is probably one of the best albums ever written. Pennington said that? Yeah. I
0: say that about a lot of albums that I like. I'm like, God, how does somebody write this? It's like... Because sometimes it just feels like it's coming from another place that you personally like, just can't necessarily reach for one reason or another. Excess, you know what I mean? You
2: don't have the all access pass.
0: Yeah,
2: <laughs> yeah. It's, exactly. It's like one of those things that just it's like the it's like the Big Bang Theory. Like the album, How, uh, uh, is it House of the Holy by Zeppelin, the one with the the nude women on the front? Okay. That that album. How, how does that album Yeah, make, how does that happen? Like I can't imagine them sitting down laying down tracks for that. It just seems like oh it's like yeah. Santa <laughs> delivered, like depressing is under your tree, don't ask questions, you know, open up and hear the fucking rain song, you know.
1: So Mal, what can what's one piece of these advice before we wrap up here is um what do you want to tell to young guitar players like to make sure that they're influencing or like they're absorbing everything that is a part of the guitar.
2: I would say to learn all of the theoretical and technical aspects of the guitar first, like your important exercises, technique and in, in picking and fingering. And then you go from your basic scales to your complicated scales, your basic chords to your complicated scales and how they tie in together logistically, which is, you know, a little formulaic. But at the same time, when you have that, when you go to the feel place, you know how to tie everything together. Uh, so that's the first thing. And also to write only from your heart and your gut and only play the stuff you really want to play, because otherwise you're going to hate the guitar.
1: You motherfucker. You just answered my second question, because I was going to say now, related to what Clay said, in the movie words as play, like actually learn like on music three and play the guitar, like feel the guitar as he touched on earlier. Well, it makes yeah, sense because he
0: wrote the movie. Yeah. <laughs> exactly.
1: Because I wrote that fucker. <laughs> yeah. But yeah,
2: I, I think that so, so people just played stuff they don't really want to play. And I, I think that's cool. Like, if you're destitute, you got to make money or whatever. I understand that, like, obviously. But if I was in a cover band, I would just play the songs I feel like playing. Like, I was playing, like, all yeah, kinds I, of. Jo- I, jo- I jo- who's in so- a cover like,
1: band and they made a lot of money. Like, I was like, at my whole thing was anyone can. Can cover a song. It takes talent to write a song.
2: Yeah, but but cover bands. There's something to be said. Like there's the bands around here. There's some that are co- the, some of the cover bands. I love going out to see them. I love. I don't know if you know Dave Islett, but he has a band called the Big Package Band. They I mean, play soul no. and Motown. Where the fuck am I going to see soul and Motown live? Nowhere. Nowhere. All the players are dead. Uh, Max I mean, and Denise, this couple who plays a bunch of '60s, '70s like acoustic material, and I get to go hang out at Old Mill Cider. Uh, right up the uh, street from our house and hang out on their lawn drinking cider watching this band. It's like, play Jefferson Airplane. Like, I want to do that. Like, that's what I feel like doing in my nights now, you know, so. That's cool.
0: Regardless, there it is. (laughs) Our interview with Chris Mal Linowski. (laughs) Yes, your tide is cold and dark, sir. It's the movie that we talked about this week and uh yeah i you hope know, you all amazon, should go you guys should go uh, check it out right it's on amazon prime it's on prime yep it's very good i would recommend watching it for sure yeah i i enjoyed it
1: and i think everybody I else talking. would enjoy it too um there's also this like this cool scene. Let's just this live with band playing. This drummer is like super cool in the background. Oh, yeah. Like, oh uh, yeah, 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 yeah great. Also, Kristoff called me the loudest drummer of all time during filming. <laughs> I the- said that. Yeah, she said. Remember- I'll never forget. Yeah, it was after the first take, and you're like, Drew Keen, the loudest drummer of all time, as you're walking across the scene. <laughs> like the like- <laughs> the acoustics in that room too were like we're not great. But- God, <laughs> yeah. holy shit. Jerky and loudest drum of all time. Did I say that?
2: <laughs>
1: yeah. That From... is
0: hilarious that you said that because I'm pretty sure I texted Keen something similar today.
2: Well, drummers have that tendency to, at band practice, they fucking play when you're talking. Uh, and you're uh, like, dude, yeah. I'm trying uh, to fucking talk to you. Yeah. just doing paradiddle.
0: So, Chris, this is exactly what happened. Keen texts me. He shows me the clip. He sends me a picture of the scene, right, in a text message. He goes, "Me right there, motherfucker," and it, I see, I see him in the in the shot. And I said, "Shoulda knew why I couldn't hear any damn guitar playing in the scene."
1: <laughs>
0: and uh, yeah, it all makes sense now. Because there you, go. <laughs> there you go, and Keen just confirmed it. You
1: said it to him during the fucking filming. Oh, thank God.
2: I, I did. <laughs> also,
1: my my snare was so out of tune. On I didn't realize it until today. I was like, "Oh, that's not in tune at all." Oh, great! But it did. Great. It did fit the scene because it was like a I, a, a blues jam. So.
2: Yeah, it was a blues jam. We just used this. You know, we do We re, didn't re, do any re-recording for that scene, which is good because. You know, you watch a movie, and you can tell everything's pre-recorded. doesn't sound like the band, and you can tell, you know, and it wasn't was like
0: a, You're right, concert. like an
1: overdub, and it's like, eh, yep.
0: that doesn't sound, like, real. This It like,
1: sounded real here. As someone who knows I'm playing, I, I heard it go, yep, that's definitely playing drums. Those are all the things that I did, 100%. Yeah. Yeah. You know? I really play the classics on that one. Regardless, <laughs> you can check us
0: out. On Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, all the social medias out there. We're on musicmoviespodcast.com, musicmoviespod.com as well. Chris, do you have anything to plug? I think your band just came out with a new uh, music video, right? Go ahead and uh, tell us about that.
2: So my band has a new video called Confetti. My band is The Collingwood. If you look it up, I like the Vimeo version, V-I-M-E-O version of the video. So if you go to the Collingwood official music video, Confetti, Vimeo, that's the better version. It's also on YouTube, but YouTube degrades the image and the sound quality a little bit, and that makes me not like them so much. But I have a guest singer on there, a woman named Jules Corridori. She's a 16-year-old Cab Calloway High School student. I told her guitar, she's a great singer, brought her on, and she fucking nailed it. Oh, very cool. And she's got a commanding presence, man. And if you watch the video, you'll see what I mean. I don't know if you've seen it or not, but it's cool. It's dark, it's beautiful, it's good shit.
0: But uh, for real, Chris, thank you for coming on our show tonight. I really, I I did enjoy the movie, and I think I'm probably going to have to go back and watch it again, just to get all the ins and outs of it. Uh, and uh, Keen, thank you for being on here
1: as per usual. You know, man, yeah, what man, do you got anytime, to say? Anytime, again, please check us out on all of the social medias. Um, please check out the Collingwood band. Yeah. Um, and please support this film. Watch alms, you say, and watch. Yes, your tide is cold, sir. It's very good. It's a very good movie.
0: Yes, your tide is cold and dark, sir. That is yep. the full
2: name yep. of the movie
0: amazon prime can we see it on any other
2: platforms like can you go no i think i only i only have it on there right now yeah uh, i was offered a couple of like really lame distribution deals and i i said no to them and i'm glad i said no because once you say yes say with the record label if the record label screwed. is not worth the shit you should not sign to them if they're not a bigger label who's going to give you money there's no reason to sign to them they will there's you're Your music is fucked. It's tied up in rights. You can't do anything with it. And I was afraid that was going to happen with this film. So I said no. So I wouldn't have made that much money on it anyway. It doesn't really matter that much. You know, it's about making the film and having control over it. Do you have anything else to add before we... Wrapped no, up here. Thanks for no. having me. I'm, yeah. I'm glad I had a couple of drinking partners tonight. Yeah,
0: I'm glad too. Uh, Who to asked
2: really good fucking questions? Oh, right. thanks.
0: <laughs> I hope so. Tomorrow mm-hmm. night I'm going to be
2: homesick for these moments.
1: Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. I'm off tomorrow. You give me a call. Yeah,
0: <laughs> I'm well, flying out. Yeah. Oh, you're flying out. Alright. <laughs> yeah, dude. Yeah. I got another well, room. Thank you all for listening, and uh join us again for the next. Thanks. Bye-bye.